This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by University of California Press, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Can Legal Weed Win? by Robin Goldstein and Daniel Sumner. In witty, accessible prose, economists Robin Goldstein and Daniel Sumner take readers on a whirlwind tour of the economic past, present, and future of legal and illegal weed. Drawing upon reams of data and their own experience working with California cannabis regulators since 2016, Goldstein and Sumner explain why many cannabis businesses and some aspects of legalization fail to measure up, while others occasionally get it right. Can Legal Weed Win is packed with unexpected insights about how cannabis markets can thrive, how regulators get the laws right or wrong, and what might happen to legal and illegal markets going forward. Can Legal Weed Win by Robin Goldstein and Daniel Sumner, out now from University of California Press. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. I have done a number of interviews about the history of conservative and reactionary movements here and elsewhere, but it feels like the American right is right now such a protean force, rapidly changing in bizarre and often terrifying ways. But its basic function, as Corey Robin reminds us, remains the same to beat back movements and political currents for human freedom, and to shore up class, gender, racial, national, civilizational, religious, and sexual hierarchies and systems of domination. This interview is my in-depth, if inevitably not entirely exhaustive, conversation with Matt Sitman and Sam Adler-Bell, the hosts of the wonderful podcast Know Your Enemy, which analyzes the conservative movement and its thinkers. If you turn to The Dig for these sorts of discussions, please know that we rely on you to keep the podcast up and running. Please take a moment to make a monthly contribution at patreon.com slash the dig. The main reason you should contribute, if you can afford to do so, is that we post every episode for free so that everyone can listen regardless of your ability to pay. And so the fact that we don't paywall any episodes means that we need those of you who can afford to contribute to do so voluntarily, which is what I am asking you to do now. But we also have gifts for you. A contribution of $10 or more a month, and we will send you a dig mug or dig tote bag in the mail or left-wing books. If you contribute any amount at all, even $1 a month, we will send you our excellent weekly newsletter by email. You can check out all our DIG newsletters, as well as our entire archive, organized by topic and guest, at thedigradio.com. I've included a link in the show notes, but make a modest donation and you'll get that newsletter emailed to your inbox, which is much, much more convenient. Please contribute what feels right to you. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash thedig. And if you are a supporter on Patreon and are not receiving our weekly newsletter, email us at digradiopod at gmail.com, and we will help you sort it out. Two last things. First, I have linked to the Vanity Fair article on the new right that we discuss at some length in the show notes. 
And also, last but not least, if you enjoyed my conversation a few weeks back with Chris Smalls, Jazz Brzezak, and others on the new labor militancy, you should check out a new essay on labor salting by Mia Inoue in the Boston Review. It picks up where my question to Chris and Jazz on salting left off and explores this exciting wave of young people, often downwardly mobile college grads who are taking jobs to organize their workplaces. I'll link to the story in the show notes. And if you need a job and want to change the world, salting might be right for you. Okay, here's Matt Sitman and Sam Adler-Bell, the co-hosts of the wonderful podcast Know Your Enemy from Descent Magazine. Matt is a writer whose work has appeared in The New Republic, Descent, and Commonweal. Sam is a writer whose work can be found in The New Republic, New York Magazine, Jewish Currents, and elsewhere. Matt Sitman and Sam Adler-Bell. Welcome back to The Dig. Hey, happy to be here. Thanks for having us back. Yeah, me too. This is Matt, by the way. Since it's three dudes, uh, I figured I'd <laughs> you know, say this is Matt while speaking so people can know who I am. And this is Sam. What does the term Republican establishment mean today? Because it no longer seems to refer to politicians who are loyal to the old Reaganite Bush model, nor to the National Review-inspired fusionism that underpinned the old conservative coalition of economic conservatives, foreign policy hawks, and the religious right. Do different groupings within the Republican Party reflect meaningful differences in policy preferences or even styles of politics? Or is it all now basically just about different sorts of relationships to the man, Donald Trump? Well, you know, uh, I'll be interested what Sam has to say in reply to that, uh, because my instinct is that increasingly I would have answered your question by uh, indicating something like this is sort of about postures toward Trump and how Trumpy you are, how much you go in on various election conspiracies, you know, the kind of core Trumpian themes. Uh, Because, you know, I I think in a policy sense, you know, for example, in the Ohio uh, Republican Senate primary, Josh Mandel got the backing of, you know, the more typical like Coke backed Americans for Prosperity, those kinds of groups. Club for Growth. Club for Growth. Yes, I I think Club for Growth, not Americans for Prosperity. Thanks. Uh, But Josh Mandel is not like a, a New England blue blood, you know, George H.W. Bush style Republican, right? So even though, you know, he wasn't as Trumpy in some policy senses, he also is kind of wacky and, you know, uses florid rhetoric, to say the least, right? He wasn't really an establishment Republican, even though some of his policy positions might have been closer to the typical Republican matrix of issues, you know, in comparison to someone like J.D. Vance, who, you know, both managed to get the backing of Peter Thiel, his money. And uh, some, like, I think more establishment-based Republican uh, uh, consultants and, you know, campaign operatives and got Trump's endorsement. And yet Mandel's ads were attacking Vance for his past criticisms of Trump. Yes, exactly. So, you know, really, I'm not sure. There might be some, you know, uh, Republican elected office holders who still maybe come from that background a bit more or their age and disposition might make them seem a little more like that. But I do think really, you know, how you relate to Trump, how your posture and position is relating to Trump is probably the best way to kind of get at 
a term like establishment Republican, which I think is increasingly almost meaningless, but you know, that's how I would answer it. Sam? I think I agree with that mostly. I think it's evident in your question that it's it's kind of like all of these different factors that are overlaid and sort of in this kind of confusing swirl, because sometimes it's in a relationship to Trump where with in the case of Mandel, where he's less Trumpy in policy, but maybe like more Trumpy in affect. Uh, he has to overperform his loyalty um, and his nuttiness in order to uh, take on the Trump lane without being an actual populist in any policy dimension. I also think there's you know, this calls for sort of speculation about the sincerity of various Republicans, which is always a dubious uh, endeavor. But there really are people in elected office in the Republican Party, is my impression, who are divided along the lines of, do we wish Trump would just go away? Or do we continue to feel like Trump is a salutary force in conservative politics. Um, and the thing about that group is it's also divided among people who want Trump to go away in the way that Mitch McConnell probably does, which is to go back to, you know, just a much l- more stable, institutional, uh, and less populist, more libertarian policy consensus. And those who want Trump to go away so that somebody who's actually just a more polished populist can take on the mantle of Trumpism uh, in the form of someone like Ron DeSantis. I think some of the young people on the new right, which I, who I profiled, would fall into that final category where they're very happy about what, has, what Trump has wrought uh, and the sort of fissures he's opened up in the party and the sort of possibilities for a different kind of Republican party that he has enabled, but no longer think that Trump is the ideal avatar for that movement because of his various flaws. Well, one area where you do find some daylight between the most MAGA diehards, the real true believers, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, et cetera, and somewhat more conventional Republicans is over foreign policy in general and military aid to Ukraine in particular. What do you make of war and more broadly, I guess, the U.S.-led international order, these being among the few areas of real conflict within the Republican Party today? I think you're right to point that out as like a sincere and manifest fissure. Like there's actually a conflict. A very small number of Republican electeds voted against a package of aid for Ukraine. And those tended to be the most Trumpy, isolationist, populist electeds. I think that we probably talked about this the last time we were on the podcast, but it cannot be, really can't be underemphasized how much of a consensus-breaking intervention it was for Trump to be as vocally critical of the war on terror as he was in 2016. As Matt likes to point out, in a, at, a, at a primary debate in South Carolina, he said, George W. Bush didn't keep us safe on 9-11, <laughs> uh, and, that these, and that the Iraq war was stupid, you know? And um, look, you know, a, a lot of lefties rightfully hold the line against these... Um, this sort of over credulity about just how anti-war any of the new right and Republican and Trumpist forces are, but it can we cannot pretend that Trump, having said those things, created space for an isolationist perspective to come back into the Republican mainstream. I, I agree with everything Sam said there, and Dan. I think one way to kind of get at your question too is to say that I really thought when uh, Russia invaded Ukraine, I actually thought there would be more Republicans who 
kind of did what Sam indicated, voted against, say, an aid package to Ukraine, or, you know, somehow tried to gum up the works and stop the Biden administration from intervening to the extent they have to aid Ukraine. I, th- I think what happened was there there really was, you know, an outbreak of sentiment, you know, in favor of Ukrainians defending themselves against, you know, this brutal invasion. Um, we can talk about the politics of that, you know, how the U.S. should have behaved. But putting aside kind of those questions, um, I really did think that some of the people in the Republican Party, I thought, might have, again, um, offered more of an alternative I think kind of fell in line, in part because they're kind of ideological confrères, people like Viktor Orban. Um, you know, of course, Putin's in that mix, too. Um, he doesn't come out of this looking great, right, obviously. You know, so I, I think kind of people of their ideological persuasion really got a kind of uh, brushback from this. And, and I thought there'd be more resistance from the kind of Trumpist types in the Republican Party who you know, I thought might follow a more Trumpian line. I mean, you got to remember, I mean, Trump was threatening to pull us out of NATO, right? Um, so when you think of like that as one possibility that Trump actually floated and compare it to how, you know, they've actually behaved, uh, the Republican officeholders uh, in Congress have behaved during this, you know, the, the crisis in Ukraine. I, I've actually, I, I, again, I expected more, I think, daylight between the Republican Party kind of led by Trumpy forces and the Biden administration. And, and when you consider that, you know, their most kind of articulate and certainly most visible propagandist on a daily basis in the form of Tucker Carlson, that he was on TV basically every night denouncing any kind of U.S. involvement in the conflict, uh, denouncing the money, any kind of aid to Ukraine and defending Putin, basically using Putin's talking points. Uh, it is notable what, Ma- what Matt points to, which is, that, which is also to say that if there is still a, a legitimate grievance that the populist pundits, intellectuals, and maybe grassroots forces that represent Trumpism have against the institutional Republican Party, it is still on those isolationist questions. Because I I think that what what happened with Russia and Ukraine demonstrates that um, actually the the sort of neocon consensus wields a lot more power and sort of ability to put uh, force people into line uh, when push comes to shove than we might have thought. And Trump, of course, did try to extort Zelensky, which was the basis of the first impeachment, but I doubt more than 20% of Americans could know that, really. Yeah, I actually forgot about that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. I forget about it all the time. Um, The impeachment was not great political theater, it turns out. But but yeah, this is a really important point, that this break with neoconservatism, which has been really profound rhetorically, has still not really taken hold practically. It's still maybe like too nascent to really stand up to the sort of patriotic moment that we're used to seeing snap Americans to attention the way that it does. Yeah, I mean, I would say another factor in this, not just like the the persuasive force of, you know, the neocon consensus, the blob consensus or whatever, but I think too there's a one interesting dynamic is the way that for all the like breakthroughs Trump occasioned, you know, kind of opening up these fissures and spaces, he's so anti-institutional. Right. That it's hard to I mean, we see intellectuals on the right, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, you know, uh, have adapted themselves to Trump. They've pivoted. You know, it's not that there haven't been shifts 
uh, on the broad institutional machinery of the right. I mean, more like the institutions of government. And like one way of, I think of understanding the Biden administration's response is just that they're institutionalists, right? Who like, you know, this happens. They're kind of the Biden State Department, you know, the people staffing DOD, et cetera. Like, you know, they know what to do when this happens. There's kind of like established, you know, lines of communication. I think they just, because they're committed to like the preservation of things like the American-led international order, NATO, et cetera. You know, the, it's 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 not just an ideological issue. It's uh, or even you know a, a kind of policy issue. It's it's also like your posture towards institutions. And I think the kind of lack of you know, forceful, organized pushback from people from a more Trumpist perspective over the fight in Ukraine, I think, shows the kind of way. The Trumpian forces still haven't entirely coalesced in certain areas institutionally. And I think like uh, th- this crisis in Ukraine is maybe one indicator of that. Though I did see that Heritage was coming out, was lobbying against the most recent military aid package, which was interesting. Well, that's that's interesting. And t- Heritage has had a change in leadership, uh, which might be reflective of that um, change, a change in leadership that was welcomed by the kind of Trumpy and new right forces. But yeah, I would just say also that when it comes to the blob, the foreign policy blob, and its relationship to really all of the media, apparently with the exception of really far-right outlets and Tucker Carlson, that is one of the most solid, you know, kind of like hegemony-producing apparatuses in in America, um, which is to say that, like, there are these foreign uh, correspondents or these people or these uh, military correspondents who know who their sources are, and they all work in these think tanks, or they're all, you know, working leaking somewhere from inside the institutions and they don't have any other source of information. If we if we think that the Trumpist, you know, insurgency within the GOP has been trying to build alternative institutions, uh, I think this is an indication that alternative foreign policy institutions haven't really been built. One thing that does seem to accompany this at least ideological or discursive break with neoconservatism on the right is that the right has seemed to shift over the past two decades from emphasizing support our troops, which we all very much remember as the slogan of the aughts, to back the blue or blue lives matter. Part of this same boomerang, I think, of these long wars abroad coming back into domestic American politics at home. Do you think there's been a shift with today's right seeing the most dangerous enemies as within rather than without the nation? I think yes. I think that's a really well said, Dan. I mean, I think that, yeah, I mean, the recall that during the Bush era, the George W. Bush era, the fear was truly of foreign terrorism and terrorists who have come from abroad and are now, have infiltrated the country through our porous borders. The, really, the weight of right-wing propaganda um, and, and sort of enmity is put on internal enemies these days, and in particular like this dangerous totalitarian left, who is, by undermining law and order, uh, creating uh, the possibilities for more crime and, and disorder um, in the country. I, th- I, think that's a, I think that's really well said. And that does raise the salience of police who are, in many ways, these kind of I think we've said this before on the podcast and maybe with you, Dan, but, you know, the the people who do violence on behalf of the state and people who are in some kind of industry connected to those those avatars of state violence um, are really like the clearest kind of manifestation of of Trump's base, (laughs) Uh, border patrol, cops um, and people in associated industries. 
And speaking of the Border Patrol, I really think that the intermediary step there historically in between the enemy abroad immediately post 9-11 and the enemy at home that we see the right so focused on today is the enemy in between, the the immigrant, which – so it's no surprise that it's really in the mid-aughts as the war on terror starts to become – both seem endless and a total failure simultaneously that we see this huge resurgence in nativist politics. And I totally agree with you about that. But I would also say it's interesting if you look back, the internal and external enemies were always linked by the right. So, for example, um, in a now kind of forgotten episode of the post 9-11 period, but Dinesh D'Souza uh, in early 2007 published a book called The Enemy at Home. The cultural left and its responsibility for 9-11. Wow. <laughs> uh, you you know, <laughs> so so I, I kind of feel like, you know, they were always linked and sort of as the external part of it fell apart, right, became a source of like shame or defeat uh, for America, or at least just, you know, something Trump discredited. You know, it was kind of natural, I think, to flip to the the always already there linked uh, internal aspect of it in a way. I would say one more thing about this, which is, I'm inspired by what Matt just said, which is that the difference seems to be that there is no real confidence that America's policing ability abroad, that its ability to control the forces of disorder abroad are sufficient. That 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 you know that that the investment in the Department of Defense's uh, role in in just shaping the international order that has been so profoundly diminished on the right, and so therefore. Policing internally uh, the threat at, that is already here or that is at our borders, certainly that is at our borders, um, just becomes the focus because there's just no company. I'm sure D'Souza, when he wrote that book, still thought that like, and we need to invest massive amounts of money in our military so that we can control what's happening abroad and, you know, you know, fight, fight political Islam. But you really that muscular foreign policy rhetoric is really not the thrust of especially the Trumpian message about uh, the American global, the, the global scene, that just that that America, America doesn't have it, doesn't have, doesn't have the goods anymore, and that's that's the left's fault, but it's just true. <laughs> so we of course need to talk about everything in the Vanity Fair article, and we should start, I think, with the reactionary tech billionaire Peter Thiel. Who is Thiel, and where do his politics come from? And then what relationship does Thiel have to this broader current known as the New Right? or national conservatives, grouping that includes Senate candidates J.D. Vance and Blake Masters, former New York Post editor Sharba Mari, the so-called neo-reactionaries, and, and others as well. What relationship does that all have to Teal and his money? Well, you know, in terms of who he is, I think it's worth taking a step back and saying, you know, even before Teal became you know, the kind of persona he is on the right now. I mean, he spoke at the 2016 RNC, the convention even, you know, which to me was just kind of fascinating to see this rich tech guy who I had known, this is where I'm going with this, as someone who had long been interested in kind of intellectual causes on the right. You know, uh, one of the first things I knew about him is that he was obsessed with uh, Rene Girard, who who taught at Stanford Um I think when Teal was a student there, uh, famous for like mimetic theory, I, Gerard's fascinating, uh, but also some Straussians. I knew Teal had some connections with, kind of funding, you know, weekend seminars where you'd read uh, various texts and and you know spend time drinking wine and discussing them and the, the kind of thing that the right does that I actually kind of miss. It was fun to be flown somewhere nice and you know talk about books for a weekend in a beautiful locale. 
but you know, uh, I think one kind of important aspect of Teal's project that I, I think in in reading some of the pieces about him and about someone like Masters in preparation for this was I hadn't really realized how much. Uh, even going back to his book, I think from 2012, Zero to One, which kind of began as uh, the notes that Blake Masters took for a, a seminar Teal was teaching, a class Teal was teaching at Stanford when Masters was a student there, um, was the emphasis on like America's stagnating. That like Teal's, one of the things he says in that book is like, we were promised flying cars and we got what, like gadgets on our phone. That it kind was of like line. A, 140 characters. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so there, there's a way in which I think Teal's concerns, he's always had a foot in, I would say, you know, intellectual life uh, of a conservative sort, you know, among conservative intellectuals. Uh, and, you know, so I knew he had those uh, leanings. I always thought of him maybe as more libertarian for some reason. Uh, you know, this is, again, years ago. I'm not sure why that could have been a mistake. It could have been his association. No, it's true. Tech. Yeah. You know. He, um, he was into seasteading, wasn't yes. he? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe I wasn't, you know, entirely mistaken. But I think you can see this emphasis on decline and stagnation that, you know, he's been uh, pushing over the last decade. It does resonate with certain Trumpian themes. And so his his kind of alliance with these, ant, you know, so-called anti-establishment the, the the people in charge of things have failed us. Those kinds of uh, emphases, you know, uh, kind of where he comes from has sort of made sense to me. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would, I'll just add a few biographical details to the Teal uh, profile. He, um, yes, he went to Stanford. There he founded the Stanford Review, which is still an operating, um, pretty much a libertarian, but kind of like anti-woke um, just kind of exists to troll the liberals on campus uh, magazine uh, that's staffed by undergraduates, but which he continues to have a very close relationship with. He meets with the editors of the Stanford Review every year. Sometimes there's been some leaks of the, like very revealing things that Teal has said. He has said to these Stanford uh, undergraduates, um, and it seems very much like he stays in touch with them in order to just have a have a have a a feel for you know what's going on at Stanford, which is of course kind of like both this Ivy League university, but also the like brain trust of Silicon Valley. Of course, after he graduated, he uh, became an investor, very an early investor in Facebook. Famously, he co-founded Palantir, which is like the er example of Silicon Valley and the United States government cooperating on repressive technology. Basically, it's interesting. This it's a conundrum that I am trying to work out. Uh, the relationship between Teal's libertarianism and his uh, new investment in a more populist Trumpism and also in... In the cutting-edge technology of the repressive national security state. Yes, 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 yes. And now, <laughs> I, I think it's it's not that hard to square that circle once you bring in some of the other uh, figures in a Vanity Fair profile, like Curtis Yarvin, who I'm sure we'll get to. But Teal, yes, like as you, as you mentioned, he was famous for investing in seasteading technologies or in sort of like in, in, in all of these, you know, let me, let me read you a quote, actually, in a, in, a, in a sort of programmatic statement that he that he wrote in 2009. He said, in our time, the great task for libertarians is to find an escape from politics in all its forms, from the totalitarian and fundamentalist catastrophes to the unthinking demos that guide so-called social democracy. Uh, and then in, in that later in that statement, he put his hope in, quote, some sort of new and hitherto untried process that leads us to some undiscovered country. And uh, it was assumed that that meant seasteading outer space, you know, terraforming other planets and these kinds of things that, you know, he, he, he also uh, a co-founder of PayPal. That was his first 
big money with um, with Elon Musk. And so they share that kind of like techno futurist optimism. But I think that Thiel's pessimism is actually what distinguishes him, distinguishes him from the prevailing Silicon Valley mentality of the 90s and the aughts. And I think you can see that even in his early investment in Facebook, one of the things that people who have written about Thiel have noted is that his interest in Girard actually informed his understanding that Facebook would be an incredibly profitable and world-bestriding technology, but not because he thought, as uh, as the other founders of Zuckerman. Facebook... Yeah, uh, Zucker, Zuckerberg. Oh, shit. Yeah. yeah. Not, as the, not as Zuckerberg at least said that he thought that it would bring the world together. Thiel understood that Facebook would be powerful precisely because it would create this what he would in Girard's terms would be these mimetic desires, these, these, this co- competition, this unbearably uh, divisive and polarizing competitive impulse on a global scale and within countries, which would so disorder. He was pessimistic about what Facebook would do, and that's why he invested in it. So I think that Teal represents something that is becoming more common as a uh, maybe counter-hegemonic uh, mentality uh, ideology in in Silicon Valley, which is being very depressive and pessimistic about these technologies while still appreciating their power. It's worth noting, too, Matt mentioned his interest in Strauss. I think he funded and sort of organized this conference of Straussians where he delivered a paper uh, of his called The Straussian Moment. And it's actually worth reading because a lot of these guys kind of play the part of an actual intellectual uh you know, just to make themselves feel good. And like, you know, they're really rich. And so these intellectual right wing intellectuals have them around and like, you know, feed their egos a little bit. But Thiel's actually really smart. And he reads an enormous amount. And he does understand Strauss in, in, its, in his darkest implications. And I hit the, the Straussian moment is effectively a kind of argument for the return of the strong gods. Um, it was written during the um, war on terror. And, you know, it was it was it was a very early expression of this pessimistic view of the of the liberal international order and the necessity for power repression totalitarian efforts in order to regain control of of a world that was um sliding into uh, barbarism um and so that's that's i think that is all in the in the mix with teal i mean i could talk about this forever i think it's i think the relationship between his intellectual preoccupations and his in investments both in the private sphere and in politics are uh, much more interesting than is typically the case with just a rich guy who gets excited about throwing his money around um, in politics. I think there's a coherence to it, and there's also contradictions that are very revealing. It it occurs to me, listening to you, Sam, that maybe a through line connecting shifts on the right, both with libertarians and economics and then with religious conservatives, is the end of quietism. No more Benedict option either economically or culturally. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the lines I've used before, maybe even on our first appearance on The Dig, but I've often thought there is some kind of connection between these two impulses on the right, quietism or retreat and dominance, because both of them are a rejection of sort of pluralism, you know, and a more negotiated you know, muddling through, like, you know, living with, you know, suboptimal policies from your perspective, people you hate, et cetera, like all the messiness of just living in, you know, uh, a very diverse pluralistic country where lots of people disagree with you, you, you kind of see the two options are dominance or retreat. And the right often toggles between them, I think, 
depending on kind of the mood or, you know, the, the uh, fixations of the particular thinker under discussion. Curtis Yarvin, I think you referenced Sam, he, he's the intellectual at the center of this neo-reactionary stew. And essentially he argues that we live under a sort of PMC oligarchy that rules through dominating the media and academia, a system that he calls the cathedral and believes functions like the matrix. And I, I think he's the guy who made the phrase red-pilled politically salient initially. What does Yarvin believe is the problem and what does he propose as a solution and just how how influential is he? Well, let me say this first. I find it profoundly disturbing in a way that hasn't even that hasn't even been fully metabolized by mainstream or left-wing media outlets that Yarvin has become sanitized to the degree that he has. It was it was it it ought to be still and it was for a long time a deeply damning thing to be connected to Curtis Yarvin or as he used to be called Mencius Moldbug. Um if you want to like look- having a connection to David Duke uh, identified in the 90s on the right or something. It, it honestly should still be that way, and it is not in the least. Just to give you some feel, a feel for some of the things he used to write. He, of course, always now when he talks about his mold bug days, he 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 tries to suggest that they were you know deliberately provocative. They were they were sometimes ironic. Um, they were meant to incite reactions, and they weren't necessarily his um, deeply felt convictions. But that's of course bullshit and a cop out. He was a defender of the uh, of apartheid. He was a defender of colonialism. He once wrote of colonialism. So so let's see. Before European colonists arrived, life in Africa was nasty, brutish and short. While the Europeans were there, Africa became relatively peaceful and civilized. You kick the Europeans out and life went back to being nasty, brutish and short. And this is, let's see, the Europeans' fault. Good morning, Mr. Orwell. How would you like your eggs today? That is a not atypical Yarvinite position. Um, it was nasty, neo-reactionary, um, pro-colonial, though he would often say, I am myself not a white nationalist. I have, he would say, like, I have a lot of good friends who are white nationalists, but I myself not a white nationalist. He would often embra- embrace essentialist uh, theories of, of racial hierarchy, for sure. And the people who follow him today, much, much, much more so, much, much more explicitly do so, especially in the Anon parts of the neo-reactionary sphere. Um, now, when it comes to his kind of theory that's being useful to the Tealites, I think, basically, he believes that the United States government um, is just too larded with bad code, with bureaucracies that don't function, and, and a state that can't even effectuate its minimal desires and plans, and that therefore this, the only solution is a Caesar-like figure, what he was, would sometimes call a, an American C, a CEO of America, to replace the presidency. Basically, that, that uh, the president would give up his constitutional power and hand over the reins of the executive entirely to a, a Caesar-like figure um, who is unfettered by democracy in any uh, substantive way? Uh, that is his vision. Um, he's he's famous for the acronym Rage, um, which, if you remember from the Vanity Fair profile, Blake Masters endorses. He says, "My friend uses the acronym Rage, which means retire all government employees as the first step. As the first thing you have to do is get rid of the entire uh, civilian uh, political bureaucracy." And I, I think I think one one way I think about the relationship between Teal, this kind of startup culture, this coder mentality, and Yarvin is this idea that like 
when you make a when you build a program, if you think about American governance as a program, um, over time you're, you're you're adding new code in that fixes a sort of small problem, but that doesn't get rid of the code that created the problem in the first place. And in Silicon Valley, they call that junk code. And this the idea is that the the American govern, governance structure is just larded with junk code. You need to get rid of all the code and start over. And from his perspective, a totalitarian leader is the way to do that. It is. <laughs> the the kind of like winky uh we all read Curtis Yarvin thing that has become popular among all these new right figures is um it should be way more disturbing and disqualifying for participation in American politics. I mean, is that how they the neo reactionaries and neo reactionary adjacent Teolites as a whole square this seemingly contradictory circle that we have these reactionary, very rich tech elites who believe that we live in a sort of high tech dystopia from which we can only be saved by by tech lords who rule over us like dictators uh they don't go all the way uh but they would agree that like the the administrative state uh can't effectuate its aims and its aims are controlled by woke totalitarians they will acknowledge that you know uh you know yarvin is just it's just thought experiments and we obviously can't do that but uh the 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 i would say that the diagnosis is shared and they are coy about the um, prescription. Yes. I mean, Sam, you use the term administrative state. And I, my sense is that one reason someone like Yarvin has been able to be mainstreamed or um, at least, you know, treated as, as kind of in the mix of these new right figures or whatever is the, the kind of structural parallels, right? Whether it's the Claremont style, you know, an administrative state that, you know, is subverting actual democracy or, you know, self-government, they would say, or the cathedral, right? There's, there are parallels there. So they're, structurally, they're similar. And I think, you know, if you want me to get a little, um, just to mix things up a little bit here, another way of putting it is if you're coming at it from a Claremont perspective, let's say, you have, um, you know, already the, the similar shared diagnosis. And you could say Yarvin's uh, answer is just an esoteric reading of Lincoln's Lyceum address. Right. Yeah. Yes. There is a time Maybe for not so esoteric. I mean, but... we, we've suggested on the podcast before that a lot of the internal theoretical political disagreements amongst people on the right can be boiled down to at the moment is, is it the time for Caesarism or is it not? <laughs> and if it is, then everything is justified. I'll, I'll say one more thing to sort of put an, put a, um, a specific example in the listeners' minds of, of what they might aspire to. A lot of these people are very fond of, of Lee Kuan Yew, the, uh, the founder of modern Singapore. His inheritance in Singapore is this extremely repressive police state, but his ability to wield power in that state at a time, and, and from their perspective, modernize it to a point of being, you know, like an, an, an effective uh, state uh, was, was derived from Lee Kuan Yew's basically totalitarian, <laughs> the totalitarian dimensions of his government. Uh, Masters in particular will say that he admires uh, Lee Kuan Yew as, as one of the great modern uh, statesmen. And Singapore is a paradise for capital, but that paradise is created by extensive state intervention in the economy, including like all land in Singapore is owned by the state and there's massive social housing sector. And so, the, the, and this, we haven't really touched on this yet, but the new right does claim to want a more interventionist social welfareist state. That's a great point. And it does harmonize these seemingly contradictory impulses and also gives lie to any of the 
credulous instincts on the left that there's that this right wing populism actually looks something like our style of egalitarian governance um, because it's it, it is predicated on on tyrannical rule and that the and it's it's its means are tyrannical for the purpose of you know basically legislating a very particular and undemocratic morality but it's not conventionally laissez-faire no exactly that's that's the that's the it's key that's the key point it's not laissez-faire but i think that um so, sometimes we, we on the left can be you know eager about the, the, the sort of undermining of the le- neoliberal consensus on the right and think oh well maybe we can get together and do some do some uh, welfare state goodies um and you know uh, in like in like very narrow moments that may be possible but you have to keep in mind that the this state power as a as a as a first principle comes comes first the egalitarian outcomes are uh, secondary if they are if they are ever achieved and they will only of course be achieved for certain kinds of subjects what I find so revealing about the new right is that they claim to be synthesizing this more welfareist pro-labor politics, though in reality it's more kind of Singaporean, with, with cultural conservatism, when it really just seems like they're doing more culture war. Yarvin and company are really invested in this post-left downtown art scene and what it would mean for ostensibly cool literary types to become reactionaries. And... Yarvin's very theory of the cathedral, or what, what Vance calls the regime, posits that we live under a PMC oligarchy of status of status obsessed media types. To me, this is the most profoundly non-materialist analysis of our neoliberal hellscape imaginable. And the new right on some level seems like a bunch of media and other elite people and posters obsessed with other media and elite people and posters who who they hate. And Vance likes to say that culture war is class warfare and that this was like this huge realization for him. But isn't he just dressing up culture war as class war by making education and geographic polarization into mystified proxies for the class divide? Don't the right kind of like the libs actually to borrow a line from Andrew Breitbart, don't they all just fundamentally believe that politics is downstream from culture or, or as John Gantz recently put it, aren't the new right, the real cultural Marxists? Well, you know, I think, Dan, your comments kind of stirred a couple things in me, one of which is, you know, uh, this line that the culture war is a class war has been something really since Trump emerged, you know, various intellectuals on the right, one of the founders of Compact, Matthew Schmitz, you know, I feel like even a few years ago, he was getting at some of this because uh, ostensibly white working class people, their, their values, you know, are different than the PMCs, right? So there is a way in which, you know, kind of cultural differences sometimes overlay like people's different position in the media and economy and and whatnot, if, if you're going to be, you know, kind of super generous. But it's not really a materialist analysis. I can't really improve on, Dan, what you said or, or, or John Ganz's piece. But I think, you know, one of the things that I see at work here is, you know, I'll just try out this argument and see what you think. One of the things is that they've embraced the use of state power, not just like in practice, but rhetorically, in a way that at least rhetorically they didn't used to. And But I do think there's a way in which, if you think about like the, the way American society and culture was structured, um, you know, how, how are, uh, what life was like here, say, on the eve of the Reagan revolution, you know, there's a way in which, you know, the right could get a lot done just through kind of negative means, right? Rolling back various aspects of the welfare state, um, deregulating, 
you know, like you could kind of go after your cultural enemies, you know, say African-American women, you know, on food stamps, whose families were on food stamps. You know, you could you could kind of punish them by kind of, you know, rolling things back. And uh, one of my kind of theories is that you could only roll back so many things before it started biting the people who, you know, you wanted to keep voting for you. And so you kind of reach this point of diminishing returns where like what the right had wrought in terms of public policy over the last few decades, um, it was actually, you know, um, st- you, the people who they wanted to keep voting for them were starting to feel it differently. And kind of Trump met that moment, I think. And so you're, I think you're seeing these people on the right say, no, you know, the rollback, the libertarianism, that just isn't good enough. We actually have to wield the state power both to help our friends and punish our enemies, to rightly order uh, our culture and society. That shift, this is like rhetorically something I, I pick up on them saying a lot, like, no, like we're going to use power. None of this libertarian stuff, none of this like, you know, minimize the state. And we're going to use it to, you know, again, help our friends, punish our enemies. And I think this is something you can see, like, you know, why in some ways, um, you know, why would Peter Thiel, you know, a gay man uh, who you know, has these, you know, has made his money in the tech industry, all these things we've described, like, in what way, like, if we think about the broad coalition of the, you know, kind of new post, whatever people on the right, is someone like Teal, you know, what does he have in common with Adrian Vermeule and Catholic integralists? Well, in a lot of ways, not much, but what they all want is, as, you know, Vermeule put it infamously in uh, American affairs, you know, integration from within, like using the administrative state, taking it over. And so even the, like, I think these disparate kind of tendencies on the right, different approaches, you know, sometimes theoretically quite different. Again, a Catholic integralist and a a gay tech guy from California, um, you know, what unites these different tendencies, I think, is the embrace of using state power in a certain way or saying they want to. Yeah, yeah. It's it Matt's so right that the, at least especially rhetorically it's become such a sort of shibboleth of the new right to say the left has been using the levers of state power to to uh prosecute its cultural agenda for decades. Why shouldn't we do the same? I think Masters in an interview I was listening to him gave give recently on kind of a a pretty far right podcast said something like it's it's well and good to be a pacifist, but once you're up against the wall in the revolution you're going to want to know how to shoot a gun or something like that. And uh, so that and that analogy for him is the libertarian ethos of the Republican Party has, you know, if your libertarian, if your libertarianism has led us to this point, what good was the libertarian principle? One final uh, provocation for this part of the conversation to, to put in there is that one thing you do see at the edges of this milieu, you see it in Vermeule, you see it increasingly with Saurabh Amari from Compat Magazine, is what was once potentially a, a kind of Schmidtian enmity towards uh, the CCP in China, which is becoming uh, an actual admiration uh, for state capitalism. You see, uh, Amari will tweet things like, you know, if I have to choose between the libertarian woke regime, the libertine and libertarian woke regime of the United States and the CCP, I'm going with the CCP. Uh, he wow. did t- tweet something to that effect. <laughs> I can find the exact tweet so that we don't get in trouble, but it's something to that effect. And, um, and with Vermeule, his kind of dense constitutional theory of the administrative state, which is his life's work, is very in- informed by, by legalism by the the first theory of the administrative state in the modern world. I mean, in, in human history, in human history, not in the modern world, in human history, which was theorized by, uh, by, uh, chi- by Chinese legal theorists. And so, and you can see 
also, what about the recent activities of the Chinese regime does have this kind of attraction in the way that someone that you hate and are focused on becomes something that you that you desire is um, in, in, in the past year or two, uh, the Chinese regime has has used its totalitarian state power to crack down on cultural decadence within the country, creating rules for how long people can play video games every day, uh, get, uh, cracking down on, you know, like deviant pornography. These are things that the American right, this populist, quote unquote populist, but really uh, totalitarian American right sees as, um, as admirable and, and, they're, and they're jealous. I found the tweet since deleted, quote, I'm at peace with a Chinese-led 21st century. Late liberal America is too dumb and decadent to last as a superpower. Chinese civilization, especially if it recovers more of its Confucian roots, will possess a great deal of natural virtue. Yes. Um, Dan, I'm I'm so glad. I, I didn't realize those... Well, that was one tweet. I, as soon as Sam was uh, talking about that tweet, my mind went to the Confucian natural virtue line. And I was going to say, that's where you get the integralist twist. You know, uh, that's the integralist cherry on top, you say. And, you know, uh, there's some stuff to admire here. And, you know, if they ever get back to the Confucianism, then we'll really be cooking, you know. That's the, the, the you know, Amari edge that, you know, you're not going to get that from Teal. What sort of older currents fed into this shift like what sort of dissidents against the fusionist consensus when that consensus was at its height are is the new right reading pat i mean some obvious people come to mind pat buchanan's friend and ally sam francis a staunchly anti-neoliberal and nationalist and really white nationalist who argued in the last decades of the 20th century that the real culture war should be a middle american class war of sorts against coastal elites the very sort of politics of course that buchanan and then trump took up and then there's also Murray Rothbard, who married Miesian neoliberalism with paleoconservatism, but who's maybe more of a figure for the alt-right than the new right. I'm not sure. What sort of longer running and one time more heterodox right-wing political currents are shaping this this new cohort? Well, you know, I think there's, you know, a few obvious answers uh, that you're pointing to, right? Uh, pointing to some of the paleoconservatives, people like Pat Buchanan, paleo-libertarians like Murray Rothbard, right? Th- these were always fissures on the right, you know, paleocons versus neocons, especially in the 80s and 90s. And if you recall, even, you know, after 9-11 and, and you know, in the Bush administration's run-up to war, you remember David Frum kind of writing as a neoconservative in the pages of National Review, uh, his famous article, uh, Unpatriotic Conservatives, kind of reading the paleocons. And especially, I think, America, the, the magazine, The American Conservative, had been founded at that point in like 2002, right? So like this tension has been there a long time. But I think, you know, the way I've I've been thinking about this lately is that actually, you know, Matthew Continetti, Bill Crystal's son-in-law, recently published a book called The Right, The Hundred-Year War for American Conservatism. And it's a pretty boring book in some ways. (laughs) I don't really like, you know, not great. But one of the interesting things he does is he does, rather than starting with the, you know, miraculous year of 1955 and the founding of National Review, or even, say, the publication of Hayek's Road to Serfdom in in the 1940s, he goes back to the New Deal era and uh, the America First, you know, kind of isolationist movement in the United States, right? Which, of course, is like kind of where Bill Buckley 
got his original politics from, right? And so like when you look at the origins of the right, opposition to the New Deal, but also this kind of America first tendency, those were kind of bound up with each other. And there's a way in which I think when you look at that, you know, so one question is like the American right, if it was pre-World War II kind of more isolationist, um, or if this, this America first tendency was, you know, one of the more robust ones on the right, how did, how did the transformation happen at the Cold War? Right. During the Cold War, how did someone like Buckley go from being a young, you know, admirer of Charles Lindbergh to a Cold Warrior? And I think, you know, there might have been a way in which on the right, the Cold War was always a bit of an aberration in a way. An aberration and, facilitated by anti-communism. Yes. And and it was kind of for maybe someone, you know, people on the right, it was always more of a nationalist project in a way it, that, you know, that might have entailed kind of these global you know, operations, alliances, whatever, in the name of anti-communism. But it was always kind of a more attenuated, uh, uh, contextual and positional kind of uh, position to take. And therefore, you know, when the Cold War ended, you know, someone like Buckley was among the earlier people on the right to say, you know, this, the Iraq War, I think, you know, it, it definitely went wrong. I think it was a mistake. And so I think in some ways, you know, what we're seeing now is, maybe the right kind of returning to its natural form or its its more typical posture in American foreign policy, you know, and, and that the Cold War, you know, you can look at the different, again, coalitional aspects of the right, the fissures, the different tendencies within it, and point to, you know, these differences that have, you know, emerged over the decades uh, on the right. But also, I think, you know, there's a way in which some of those debates, like neocons and paleocons, were sort of an aberration and an occasion by the right, at least significant elements of the right, behaving in ways they historically wouldn't have, and that were kind of an exception occasioned by the menace of atheist communism. Yeah, I was going to say, atheist, the atheistic threat of communism also heightened the uh, the the impulse towards coalition of the of the traditionalist uh wing of the of the GOP or of the conservative movement. I wanted to say one other thing about paleocons um which is that I think we talked about this the last time we were on the podcast, but one of the things that distinguishes paleocons from neocons and from other kinds of and from straussians they reject the idea that American uh, na national identity can be reduced to a set of ideas, that it can be reduced to sort of Lockean liberalism, that it can be reduced to even the... The founding or the declaration. or Right. Even, even, yeah, even then our, to our founding documents. Instead, what they think is that uh, there is something about the cultural and indeed ethnic uh, identity of the American people in a particular place, in a particular time that made this regime good and functional. Um, They're a little more like clear-eyed and real politic about the settler colonial reality of this country, right? That that is, of course, the irony. But yes, um, and and therefore that is also one of the things that always made them less sanguine about the nation building and democracy promotion hubristic project of of, of the war on terror. They said, no, you can't just you can't just export American democracy because American democracy is not a set of ideas. It is it is about the particular ethnic. Uh, makeup and history of this particular place in a particular time. Uh -huh. And it was, you know, often uh, some of the strongest advocates of that position were neocons, I think. And, you know, I don't think it's 
Uh, I mean this in a. You're saying that the pe- the, uh, the strongest advocates of the nation building position. Uh, well, of the universalizing mission of the United States, um, of the fact that you didn't have to be a particular ethnicity to be a good American, right? It was more adherence to a set of ideas. You know, um, I don't think it's an accident that some of the strongest proponents of that were uh, Jewish intellectuals, uh, right? Uh, the neocons who entered the conservative flux. All that's to say that I think it's not an accident that the neoconservatives kind of rose in prominence on the right during this moment in the Cold War when a more universalizing rendering of like America's mission in the world kind of made more sense. And, you know, once the Cold War went away and then especially after the disaster of Iraq, you know, this kind of tendency, you know, I I don't think it's an accident that it receded, right? In some ways, it was always like an odd fit on the right. Um, both historically, again, going back to America first, Charles Lindbergh, et cetera. Um, and then, you know, once the Cold War ended, you know, I mean, it's it's kind of telling already that in 1992, Buchanan's right. This is when he makes his big play and speaks at the Republican National Convention. And, you know, that's just after the Cold War. He already was saying, come home, America, literally, you know, come home, America. Uh, and I think there's always been that strain on the right. And, you know, even talking about Trump and Ukraine and our, you know, American foreign policy earlier, one thing I didn't say then, but it might be worth saying now, is that I think, too, there are occasional, like, uh, momentary overlaps between, say, a a more neoconservative position and a more Jacksonian, to use, you know, Andrew Jackson, kind of that a phrase, a term that's been used to apply to a kind of foreign policy that's, well, you know, we don't mind smashing stuff up, defending America, right, bombing some foreign countries, but we're not going to nation build. Yeah, so there's there's always been, I think, you know, these, even, even I think, after um, uh, the war on terror, there were some intellectuals on the right, like Rich Lowry, I think, wrote a piece for, for like a new Jacksonianism. Right. Like there's, you know, there's always been a way in which the maximalist universalizing message isn't really the deepest rooted one on the right. And I and so in some ways, I think we're seeing like a return to form, even if that takes a while. And but it's a, it's a return to form in many ways, because this was also contingent on the Cold War order, which we took as the normal order for a long time in the United States, but actually didn't last that long in the grand scheme of things. But it, it was this this sort of ideology, which was how how the liberal international or, order married American democratic exceptionalism to America's universal imperial prerogative. It required that for there to be both domestic and some measure of international legitimacy for the exercise of American power globally. And that required a certain sort of more blood and soil paleoconservative politics to be marginalized. But goodbye, Cold War. War on Terror is a disaster. Back to form. And just to, again, reference the earlier discussion of Trump and Ukraine and, you know, the right's response to that, uh, not just the ideology of the Cold War, Dan, but there, a whole set of array of institutions were set up to embody it, like in the national security state, right? So when we see like, you know, Russia invade Ukraine and NATO's involvement, right? Like this is an institutional arrangement forged in the Cold War. And these institutions still exist. The National Security Council still exists. The Department of Defense still exists. Uh, you know, NATO still exists. These All these alliances and, and institutional forms still exist. And so there is this kind of, I think, kind of hangover from the Cold War where these institutions are still there. 
even if like ideologically there are, you know, now significant numbers of, of Republicans like looking for something different. And there's kind of a tension, I think, between the ideas and the kind of remaining institutional inertia. Uh, Dan, I was thinking when you were asking for other kind of sort of intellectual uh, predecessors to this new movement or the sort of people that they're reading, one person we didn't mention is James Burnham. And James Burnham actually really represents in a way precisely this odd, a temporary suspension of a certain kind of uh, political instinct for the purposes of the Cold War. He was one of the most uh, uh, fervent Cold Warriors on... Uh, After being a one-time leading Trotskyist. Uh, yeah, on, on, on being... Re- before. I think we talked about this in our last episode, but he was Trotsky, one of Trotsky's main uh, lieutenants in the United States, then becoming a hardcore Cold Warrior. But at the same time, writing these books about managerialism and using um, Italian elite theory and theory of oligarchy uh, as his way of making sense of, or sort of translating some of these, some of the sort of uh, Marxist materialist categories into reactionary ones for the purpose of making sense of uh, the, the U.S. in relation to both initially Hitler's regime and Stalin's regime. But now, I mean, Burnham's not alive, but if Burnham was, I, <laughs> he was a practical guy. I actually don't know that he would have, you know, gone along with every neocon, uh, um, starry-eyed neocon uh, utopian dream for the world, for the global world order. And now he's become um, one of the the. Ma- I mean, everybody's reading Burnham on the right right now because for 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 them, Burnham's theory of of oligarchy is the way to explain, you know, the sort of woke totalitarian administrative state allied with the, the media. And wasn't he a key influence on Sam Francis as well? He was Sam Francis's major influence. And, and you know, the, 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 the inconvenient thing about Sam Francis, Sam Francis is that he uses Burnham's categories to arrive at essentially uh, paleocon and, um, and white nationalist uh, conclusions. This new right seems like a really marked shift from the so-called alt-right that dominated so much of the coverage of the right in the early Trump moment. Figures like Milo Yiannopoulos and Richard Spencer. What happened to the alt-right, aside from Milo recently becoming Marjorie Taylor Greene's congressional intern? (laughs) And (laughs) I love love her being like, I've got this wonderful intern. Uh, (laughs) You know, he was he he used a great story. She knows how to keep her name in the press. Yeah. So what happened to them? What was up with kind of the early Trump moment being read through them? Was that wrong to read the early Trump moment through the alt-right? And and what does this shift, if you agree with me that there's been one, what does that either in substance or just in discourse about the right, what, what does that shift say about the trajectory of the right over the past, I guess, six years? That's a question I've asked myself, actually. A lot over the past few years, because even at the time, early in the Trump years, uh, while he was during his campaign and then, you know, early on in his presidency, there was so much attention paid to the alt-right. And I was never sure what to make of it, in part because it felt extremely online. And, and you know, while I wouldn't want to downplay it at all, especially, you know, after Charlottesville, um, it still wasn't clear, like, w- what this meant for electoral politics. You know, was this a real constituency you know, it, it just like did it. How much did it really and truly matter? Um, I mean, obviously, it mattered that Trump kicked this up and gave aid and support to them, right? Like, it it definitely matters in that sense. But in a larger sense, when thinking about the trajectory of the right, I, I always was a little uncertain, and it does seem like it faded. I think part of it was 
the reaction to Charlottesville. Some of it was deplatforming people like Milo, right? Um, there was a range of things. But I, I would say, rather than you know, giving my definitive take on the alt-right and you know, the media coverage of it and how to understand it, I just want to say it was always a bit murky to me. Um, maybe my instincts were it was possible to make too much of it in some ways. But I would say the thing now that I've, I've been struck by is, uh, yes, the alt-right's kind of, I think, declined like in terms of, again, how they're being covered. You know, uh, like what's Richard Spencer up to these days? I know. I don't know. I'll tell you. Right. I mean, uh, you know, I'm sure it's no good. <laughs> but where I'm going with this is I think it's also been the case that it's just meant more extreme elements in the Republican Party have been mainstreamed. Or it just kind of was like once you – once you have people like some of the figures associated with the alt-right, to put it maybe not the best way, but like being a part of the political conversation in a way, you know, I think it's, it was just kind of an early indicator of, you know, some of the people Trump was kicking up. And, you know, we might not have the alt-right in the same way now, but you have Marjorie Taylor Greene in Congress. You have Lauren Boebert in Congress. You have people like Carrie Lake running for governor of Arizona. You have someone like Doug Mastriano, you know, uh, winning the GOP nomination for governor in Pennsylvania. Like, there's a whole, I think, kind of, you know, you, you, we were talking about, like, the you know, who are the Trumpists? Who are the establishment? I think one kind of thing I've seen is that now, you know, there there's like – the people who want to go beyond Trump, Masters, Vance, et cetera, Sam was kind of indicating that earlier, that there's some of the intellectuals, uh, the younger, you know, reactionary intellectuals on the new right. You know, it's not like they're super wedded to, to Trump as a, the person, the man. You know, they view him usefully as a, you know, the bull in the china shop who – you know, uh, helpfully disrupted the Republican Party, kind of set in motion things, opened up spaces. But, um, you know, uh, so there's those kinds of people. But there's also, again, the Mastrianos, the Boberts, the, the Marjorie Taylor Greens. And it feels like, like one significant wing of the Republican Party are the kind of freaks that Trump has kind of kicked up and kind of empowered in a way. Sometimes he endorses them. Sometimes he'll, you know, not endorse them. But like, there's now just this wing of real crazies, kind of in the Republican Party. And I, I'm not saying there's like a, a relationship directly between the alt right and them. I'm saying like I feel like some of the energy around the alt right and kind of the place they kind of occupied in the Trumpist reality, um, if they've faded, it's it's been in part again because they've been you know, deplatformed or kind of discredited in a certain way. But also, I just feel like... Oh, they started going by their real name and volunteered for a campaign. Yeah, yes. <laughs> um, but but, the, but there's just this kind of like a, a genuine now, like, kind of crazy lane in the GOP. And it's a mix of some of the racism, you know. I mean, even Blake Masters, uh, even someone who I think he wants to be on terms, some of what he said lately, I mean, whether it's quoting Nazis or even when it comes to crime, well, it's black people. I think there's just a way in which the need for the alt-right has declined because, you know, people are just saying more and more of that outright. Uh, I've, I've been thinking about it a lot, too. There's a couple things. One is that the alt-right was really primarily an Internet phenomenon. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was memes. It was the, the Pepe Frog uh, anonymous accounts. Um, of course, it manifested sometimes in real violence, um, and they sometimes uh, showed up to actual demonstrations, but not very much. Uh, most of what was covered was 
journalists who are also always on Twitter and Facebook seeing uh, these things bubble up. Um, and I think, as everyone noted at the time, some of the the precedents for the alt-right was really this culture of, of online forums and gamers from uh, the, uh, what's that called, Gamergate in 2014. Now, I think, Dan, your point that uh, there's sort of more paleo-libertarian pedigree in the alt-right, which seems maybe at odds with this more populist, state power-oriented uh, new right, is a good one. And I, But what to keep in mind, a couple of things to keep in mind. One is that basically every young person on the right who's come on to the right uh, in the past, you know, before 2016, they, they tend to start as libertarian. I mean, you know, a young person who's on the right is a libertarian. That was basically like a truism, <laughs> you know, in the, in the 2010s. Um, and a lot of these people, when you listen to them, even if they're on, if they're new right now and they're like 30 at least, they will say, of course, I used to be a libertarian and I've changed my ways. Um, you know, I realized that, like I was saying earlier, that libertarianism brought us to this point of, of decadence and barbarism and woke ideology. And uh, therefore, libertarianism isn't enough. In fact, it may be a hindrance. Um, but the reason they were libertarians at that time was because it was all about, like, we want to say whatever we want. You know, we want the platforms to be free and we can say we want to be racist and we want to push push the envelope in terms of uh, winky, winky threats of violence but and the, genocide. The freedom to transgress. The freedom to transgress. And that's, and that's you know, kind of a hallmark of a reactionary avant-garde always. Um, I think you still see that with our friends downtown. I think you see that. I think you still see that even with that freedom to transgress element is still present in a figure like Blake Masters or J.D. Vance. So J.D. Vance says, um, are you a racist? Do you hate Mexicans? J um, Blake Masters will say, you know, so they're going to call me a white nationalist no matter what. They're going to call me a racist no matter what. I should just say what I think is true. You know, that stuff's all there. Um, I just think that the uh, freedom to transgress element, it can't inform the whole package of ideology because from their perspective, you know, freedom of sp speech is, is well and good, but you need state power to, uh, defeat our, to defeat our enemies. And we need, we need, you know, we very, we very well may need, uh, to control speech that we don't like, um, of the sort that is too, too woke and um, not Christian enough, or they've become they've become in touch with the social conservative impulse with that was I think already there within their ideology. But uh, libertarianism, I think, for a lot of them, if you listen to what they say, they put away childish things. They put away the libertarianism of their youth and have become, you know, that because they're 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 sort of like horizons of political possibility have lengthened. They no longer think libertarianism is, is enough to achieve those ends. And they don't just want to post on the Internet. They want political power. Yeah. So is that why it happened right when it did that this economic nationalism of, of sorts supplanted the, the neoliberal libertarianism on the right? Because, of course, the initial response to the financial crisis was the hardcore libertarian Tea Party, a libertarian moment that was revealingly, above all else, staunchly anti-immigrant. I mean, within a few years, that becomes the main theme, just as an aside. What, what I'm maybe picking up on that you're from something you just said was this, as Sam Francis predicted, did this change take place? You just said something about their, their political horizons expanded. Did, did this change take place because the white working and middle classes had only adopted libertarianism reactively when they saw the welfare state as, as supporting undeserving others, but that once they glimpsed the possibility of exercising that power themselves, that they would want to wield a powerful state to their own benefit? 
Well, I mean, Dan, that's kind of what I was getting at in my earlier answer. You know, that like, you know, Reaganism spent down the, the kind of limited social capital. I hate to use that term, but like the, the, the minimal, uh, um, achievements toward social democracy the United States had achieved by the end of Lyndon Johnson's administration, let's say. Right. And you could spend that down. You could kind of attack that, uh, framework for a few decades, I think, before it really, you know, bit the white voters in the Republican Party in a certain way, you know, like the consequences of certain decisions, you know, were years and decades in the making. Uh, but also, you know, one, I, I've always been kind of uncertain about this because uh, you're totally right, Dan. One of the great anecdotes from Trump, from his mouth, literally, was at the start of, um, at the start of Tim Alberta's book, American Carnage, where he's, I think, interviewing Trump in the Oval Office. And Trump says, you know, all these Tea Party people, they're just Trumpists now. And I think actually Trump was correct about that. Now, does that mean they, like, um, among a mass of people, not just conservative intellectuals, there's been a shift in, like, their understanding of the American economy and how that interacts with state power and, you know, various policies? I'm not sure because, you know, one of the interesting things is that, you know, where I grew up in central Pennsylvania, like, the anti-NAFTA sentiment was one of the only consistent things I heard from my father growing up, say, in the 90s. Right. And the sense that America had been ripped off, you know, that jobs had been shipped to Mexicans and Chinese. You can see where I'm going with this. You know, uh, that kind of message of grievance uh, also is a part, uh, a major aspect of how Trump pitched his so-called economic populism. And so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sometimes I'm uncertain, like how much of it really is. It might be among the policy intellectuals, you know, genuinely a shift. But I think at the level of like political messaging and campaigning, there's a there's a way in which it can already be enfolded into like uh, the typical scapegoating rhetoric that picks on various you know ethnic and racial minorities that blames other people. Right? It's kind of a, it's again a message of grievance and scapegoating, and so the economic populism, so called, I think it can work. You know, as a again a, a genuinely kind of new policy thrust from some of these new right intellectuals, but it also maps on to longstanding, you know, tropes about who's in and who's out, you know, who's a real American, who's, who is our government really serving, whose interest is being served, you know, that's all in the mix too. Yeah, it brings to mind Theta Scotchball, and I forgot her co-author's name, short, very interesting book on the Tea Party, which really demonstrated, if I remember correctly, that a lot of the Tea Party on the grassroots end was really motivated by the sense that old white people's wealth, and I'm not necessarily talking about super wealthy, but middle, upper middle class, was being redistributed to an undeserving younger generation that was fundamentally other to them. So there's more through lines here than rupture, when, at least when we get to the grassroots ordinary person level. This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond. And you can support it on patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Writing Red, an anthology of American women writers, 1930 to 1940, edited by Charlotte Nicola and Paula Rabinowitz. 
this landmark collection of fiction, poetry, and reportage by revolutionary women of the 1930s lays to rest the charge that feminism disappeared after 1920 and adds important texture to our picture of American radicalism in the early 20th century. Toni Morrison writes that the anthology is peopled with questioning, caring, socially committed women writers, and Keisha N. Blaine notes that it powerfully captures the vital role revolutionary women played in shaping American radicalism during the Great Depression. It is a must-read for anyone interested in history, gender, and politics. Find Writing Red at haymarketbooks.org, where readers in the U.S. and U.K. receive free shipping on orders over $25 and £20, respectively. Writing Red, an anthology of American women writers, 1930-1940, edited by Charlotte Nicola and Paula Rabinowitz, out now from Haymarket Books. We can't talk about Teal and the neo-reactionaries and the Vanity Fair article without also talking about the so-called post-left of the so-called vibe shift, which is mostly a set of New York City arts and culture types, which revolves around a certain podcast. People who maybe by and large were into Bernie and got disappointed were really unnerved by the George Floyd movement for whatever reason, and then discovered a way to think about politics that vibes with either A, a cocaine-powered party lifestyle, or be somewhat incongruently with becoming a trad calf. And I think it's telling that the downtown New York scene chose this right-wing solution to their experience of present contradictions, whereas working-class people in the city unionized the first Amazon warehouse ever. These are two different reactions to the current moment. The former can afford to hold everything cringe in disrepute. But to step back for a moment, what what is going on? Like, what is this phenomenon? Is it important? And then why is irony so key here? Such an allergy to sincerity. Why do these disaffected, newly right-wing hipsters so desperately want to live within the pages of early aughts Vice magazine? (laughs) Matt, do you know? I don't know. Well, you know, one thing I would say, uh, and I have to admit, like... um, the all the discourse about the downtown scene and some of the podcasts and figures associated with it, uh, I'm not as up on that as uh, I might be, uh, just because. Well, it's just not that interesting <laughs> to me. Uh, but you have better things to do, man. Yes, uh, and I'm not sure of its importance other than giving you know some of the figures in this Vanity Fair article you know maybe a frisson of cultural. Uh, feeling on the cultural edge, right? Like, which I think is a thing on the right. Even though um, they denounce the cultural elites, uh, deep down, I think, you know, it's a sore spot for them that they're not considered cool or hip or, you know, like the meme online, like, uh, get worried, like the conservatives are getting good at comedy, right? Uh, Conservatism is the new counterculture. Right, like those kind of sentiments, I think, betray a certain, again, woundedness or whatever. But, you know, there is one point I wanted to make about um, the rejection, I think, as you put it, Dan, of all things cringe. As a noted, and I think I can speak for Sam and I both, as noted proponents of earnestness, I will say this, and I think it ties into much of what we just said, which is that I think there is a connection between earnestness and democracy. (laughs) 
or, or, or you know, uh, being willing to put up with cringe in democracy, you know, because it's it's kind of saying instincts and impulses of your fellow citizens that might seem, you know, hopelessly normy and, you know, definitely not ironic. Um, you know, those are the people you have to engage. And so I think there, there's actually a way in which, you know, kind of earnestly, you know, making your case to your fellow citizens to try to persuade them, you know, to be a part of a, a democratic project to improve how we live together. You know, what could be more cringe? <laughs> right. Uh, and, and, and so I, I yeah. actually because I've thought about this a lot, you know, even I really thought it was truly notable that uh, when I took my first graduate seminar with Michael Kazin, former co-editor of Dissent, he assigned uh, Christopher Lash's book, Plain Style, A Guide to Written English. Obviously, like Lash gives lots of good advice about how to write better prose, especially, you know, in light of the sins typical of the graduate student and the academic writer. Uh, Mm -hmm. But also, I think there was a a really democratic message there that like how you address the language you use to address your, your, you know, the people, uh, your fellow citizens in a democracy matters. Like, you know, there, there is a democratic imperative for, I think, like direct, earnest speech that, you know, isn't totally irony pilled and, uh, you know, worried about being cringe. Sometimes, sometimes, uh, you know, being a small D Democrat uh, is quite cringe. And I'm fine with yeah, that. I, I recently, uh, there was one of these people like, I think they were tweeting, making fun of like a an image of the Zoom meeting for the Vox Union. And they all had um, LGBT flags in the background you know it's fucking pride month like that's <laughs> not a huge shocker but they it, i don't know if this person was right wing or post left but they were like this is you know this is uh, uh this is pathetic look how cringe this is or whatever and I, I just said as i've said probably to both of you in the past like the labor movement is cringe like you <laughs> And I, I said, like, you know, you know, if you if you're on a picket line, sometimes everybody's wearing the same purple shirt <laughs> and they're and in fact, they might be chanting and singing together. What could be more cringe and sincere than that? Um, and the Bernie and, campaign was super cringe fights for someone you don't know. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. And so I like, don't know. There was no how... irony to that line at all from Bernie. Um and nope. <laughs> uh, in fact, someone recently said, like, when was the last time like a mainstream politician really inspired you? And I think I did go back to that Bernie rally, the great the great post heart attack AOC yeah. uh, in, in Queens. Right. Uh, with that line. But like in some ways, like that is the totally earnest, like distillation of my political commitments. Right. It's and it sounds uh, again. It's it's not very ironic. It's not edgy. It's not sexy or cool, but it's what I believe. Obviously, what people are reacting against, if they're kind of a left wing, upper class, uh, or formerly left wing upper class art artist type or self understood avant garde bohemian, um, is that there's an enormous amount of earnestness which is core to the identity of sort of mainstream Democratic Party liberalism. And they have seen the lie of that over and over and over again in its dimensions, even regarding things like economic populism or racial justice or trans and uh, LGBT rights. Now, it doesn't seem like these people who have become right wing really cared about that stuff that much. It wasn't the cringe part of it that they had a, a, a beef with if they like lost their mind over the George Floyd protests. But I will say 
that if there's a rejection of earnestness amongst people who basically live in this ferment of 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 mediation and 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 culture and art you can understand an affective reaction against that because an enormous we we have lived in a time of earnest moralism with no substance from a lot of our actually empowered uh political leaders yeah and you know just to hop off that to say one more thing because it is like identified as an arts and culture scene right um i actually you know i don't mean to offend any of your listeners or anyone else but like i'm someone like if if they produce great art i would actually be willing to like countenance various political sins or totally. something right but here's the totally. thing this is described as an arts and culture scene what are, <laughs> no it's not like they're not producing <laughs> novels or poetry or you know we're talking about like bit well maybe they are well, i just yeah, don't know but, we, we don't know about them it yet but we're talking about like bit actors podcasters no offense you know we're three podcasters here but like you know i don't view know your enemy as like um you know, my generation's Tolstoyan novel, right? <laughs> right. It's a fucking podcast. And that's yeah. the thing. Like, these people aren't interesting. They're not producing yeah. interesting works of, of, of culture. And, you know, I just, I don't know. I just, they leave me cold. So do, do they matter? Or is this just media solipsism that people are writing articles about them and we're talking about them now? I, I have one point to make. I, I don't I, I really think I can't answer the question, do they matter? Uh, I think Matt's point about how uh, the right is always looking for some kind of phrason of uh, of transgressive, um, artistic cutting edge, whatever, to make up for the fact that in fact, you know, they are the nerdiest people of all time, maybe at work here and and that may give these people, of course, if they're attracting teal money, uh, that impulse has real material impacts, you know. <laughs> sanitizing Yarvin for the Vanity Fair audience, then that's that's also could have material impacts in the world. I will say this, I think one underappreciated, this gets very like, le- um, or this, this gets very New York, or New York parochial. I think one thing that happened in terms of the fixation of left liberal media on the downtown scene is that left liberal media became extremely invested during the pandemic. We were all online all the time. And left liberal media became very invested in their superior morality by dint of following the COVID rules very, very uh, assiduously. And they came to resent in a way that was also a form of jealousy anybody who was not doing that. And the fact that it felt like a, a violation of this norm that they had adopted and had become a significant part of their identity, here I'm talking about the progressive media, they had to overperform their derision and fixation upon anybody, including these sort of downtown youngins who continued to party and do cocaine throughout the pandemic um, in order to justify and, and safeguard this, this moralistic identity. Now, that is, a, that is a non-normative analysis. It was good to follow COVID rules, right? I'm saying that as a, as a, as a psych... It's also true that people felt a certain way about them and constructed and shored up identities around them as well that's just a reality yes that there was a certainly a a a, 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 a a psychological even we could say libidinal investment in, in rule following in a way that was in excess of just being a good 
participant, a, a, you know, good, a, you know, a good participant in in a in a society undergoing a health crisis. Um, so I do think that's part of what's going on. Why it's become, why it became so much of a bigger phenomenon. Why so many people in the left liberal media are fixated on it is is because of some of those dynamics. But this may not be at all interesting to dig listeners who are not in this world. But I I, I do think that's right. Well, zooming out a little bit from that very particular world that may or may not matter at all, there is more broadly this sort of bad dialectic between certain forms of liberalism right now and the way liberals are invested in a certain politics as a means to shore up their own sense of selves and identities, a certain bad dialectic between those forms of liberalism and this new right post-left currents coursing through the country that are so attached to the thrill of transgression. Well, you know, Dan, to kind of play off some of that a little bit and to go, you know, to to pick up with some of what we've been discussing, one of the things I was thinking about as this description of uh, that Sam offered of the downtown scene, you know, kind of during the pandemic or, you know, during the height of, you know, the kind of COVID shutdown lockdown is that, you know, just a few months ago, I remember arguing on Twitter with some conservatives who said, all the pandemic measures are going to stay in place forever. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, obviously not true, right? Like there's what pandemic measures exist at all right now. You know, you don't have to wear a mask, you don't have to be tested to fly, masks on the subway, etc. I mean, you know, these things, it's just not the case that we live in like this totalitarian pandemic, perpetual lockdown, right? So if they just waited a few months, they would have been able to do whatever they wanted anyway. Uh, is where I'm going with it. So their analysis actually was wrong. Like it was all predicated on something that turned out not to be true. And it's actually been like the organs of mainstream liberalism, like David Leonhardt, right, who have been some of the uh, people most criticized for, you know, the kind of return to normalcy push. And where I'm going with this is just to say that uh, one thing I think about these people all the time, and when I when I actually, you know, uh, because I, I do understand the kind of visceral reaction to a certain kind of preening, self-important, uh, like sanctimonious, sanctimonious uh, like liberal pandemic pro identity, right? Like I, I get it, or, or at least I can understand why some people might react against like the most moralizing version of certain currents we're all familiar with. And But I, I talk to young people sometimes who, because of the podcast, are like, you know, I'm a, a, a student, I'm an undergraduate at university X, Y, or Z, often an elite Ivy League university. And they say, like, I really do feel oppressed by political correctness, by uh, the, the kind of norms on campus. But, you know, uh, and it's making me feel like the tug of moving right. And the thing I always tell them is uh, a line from Marilyn Robinson's Gilead. I don't know if I used it last time I was on the show or not, but it's one of my favorite lines. And it's in the, you know, put in the mouth of Reverend John Ames, the Protestant minister. And he says, nothing true about God can be said from a posture of defense, which I always interpreted as if you're being totally reactive, you're never really going to get to the truth. You know, like you can't simply just be reactive totally in your politics. What do you actually believe in? What do you actually want to do? What's the positive programmatic aspect of this? And so, you know, I say like, yeah, you might be reactive in to some of, you know, the norms of the liberal mainstream culture in the way that some of these downtown scene people are. Um, but why should you move right? Why, why is it better to like ally with out and out racists 
than, you know, put up with using someone's pronoun that they ask you to, right? Like what's the, the purely, the kind of reactiveness to this stuff, I just think is a dead end politically because it doesn't answer what you're for. It doesn't answer questions about, you know, what kind of world you actually do want to live in. If your politics are entirely defined by who annoys you the most, you end up like Glenn Greenwald. And instead of being the really talented and important analyst and critic of the U.S. national security state, you become someone obsessed by the culture war. Uh You just become unmoored from any kind of steady guiding political principles because it's just it's just reacting to the things you think you hate. And that's just a dead end. And that's sort of my, you know, summary of all reactive kind of scenes like we've been describing. It's just I get why some people might it might appeal to them, especially like in the midst of a pandemic when we're all like our mental health is bad. We're stuck inside. Like I get like lashing out against that in some ways, even if it's ultimately immature and, you know, inconsiderate. But I, I'm not totally, you know, uh, unable to to kind of get why some people can work themselves into this lather and, and kind of, you know, back themselves into this, you know, Greenwaldian kind of posture. But I, it's just a dead end for me. And that's kind of my, what ultimately I land with some of these people is just pure reaction is never going to get you where you, you need to be. Sam, in terms of this like anti-woke alliance that emerged that has emerged on the right. In terms of this alliance, Nate Hockman, a young right-wing intellectual who who you've interviewed, wrote in the New York Times recently that there's a serious tension within this anti-woke coalition between the religious right on the one hand and the secular anti-wokes on the other. And the secular anti-wokes, Sam, you, you've written about, uh, you write, quote, by my lights, Matthew Walter's concept of barstool conservatives fratty libertines dedicated primarily to scandalizing overbearing libs and flouting their social norms and niceties remains the most clear-eyed encapsulation of the GOP's prospective future majority. This anti-woke alliance has certainly become powerful. Do, do you agree with Hawkman, who is a fan of that alliance? Do you agree with him that it's, that it's also fragile? I thought that part of Nate's analysis was spot on. And, it, and what was particularly interesting about it was that Nate comes from the perspective of somebody who is a traditionalist Christian conservative and who wishes that uh, these secularizing forces were not as strong as they are. He's hopeful that the coalition can be held together. What I think is interesting, which he didn't exactly say, is that it also recapitulates the old fusionist uh, dynamic in the sense that these libertine barstool conservatives who basically just want to be able to say whatever they want uh, but aren't particularly concerned about Catholic theology or, or like legislating morality, certainly not, you know, these guys probably watch a lot of porn, for example, that those people are put into the position of the libertarian side of the old fusionist alliance. And we're again, we're again, we're again in the same situation where we have libertarians and social conservatives, traditionalists, maybe with the composition somewhat shuffled around. And then we are, we are beset, we, we are given to ask the question, what is holding them together, right? In the past, with the Fusionist Alliance, we would have said anti-communism and opposition to the civil rights movement. Today, I think we could say, basically, a more egalitarian racial order and a kind and inclusive approach to LGBT rights. I think that, <laughs> I think that the, the question that Nate does not ask, but that is suggested by his recapitulation of this rickety coalition is 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 what holds together these people who otherwise um, would have 
divergent theological convictions. Um, yeah, they don't want to live under Adrian Vermeule's integralist theocracy. No, right. So exactly, so exactly, exactly. <laughs> no the, porn allowed in that world. <laughs> no, exactly, and exactly. And that, I made that point in my piece, but I think what Nate's piece made me think, though he did not state it explicitly, is that some of the same essential stuff holds together this coalition. It is the, it is the fear, opposition, and, and resentment of the other. It manifests in a different idiom for both of these groups, but it's it's kind of the same, well, old wine, new bottles. Matt, what do you think? Yeah, I would say, you know, Nate's piece uh, in the New York Times that you mentioned, I agree with, say, John Gans's criticisms of it, especially Nate's peculiar use of Marxism, I think, at one point. But putting that aside, I thought the fundamental truth of the piece was that uh, America is secularizing, or at least, you know, uh, people are disaffiliating with institutional religion. People, uh, we call them the nuns, right? Uh, the idea that, uh, you know, people have no uh, particular, you know, religious affiliation. They don't claim a particular religious label. They might be spiritual. It doesn't mean, you know, they're totally atheist or godless or they have no sense of spirituality. But, you know, uh, it's, it's clear that in recent decades, America is secularizing. People are disaffiliating with religion. And, you know, the key aspect of this is that for the longest time, people on the right said that it was conservative churches resisting these trends. It was only because of the kind of liberal departures from orthodoxy in the mainline Protestant denominations that they were declining. But, you know, uh, real religion, uh, things that really made a truth claim, that demanded something of their believers, were still holding on. And we now know that that's not the case. So even among conservative churches on the right, you might say, these these trends and dynamics are at work. So it's just stood to me to be obvious that in light of that, there would be shifts on the right in terms of the rhetoric used, the religious concepts used, the, the precise kind of power and proportion of the religious right in this coalition. So uh, for some of the critics of Nate's piece, I just was like, well, you know, there's lots of, of, of particular aspects of it you can criticize. But the core truth is we are in a period of religious decline, in a period of secularization and disaffiliation with established churches and, in, and religious institutions that has to somehow, uh, you know, uh, end up affecting coalitions on both the left and the right. And, you know, when I— It doesn't necessarily mean uh, decline in social— conservatism right just, a new, right. Uh, it, just that it's taking uh-huh. a new form yeah in other words there is um a meaningful distinction between religious conservatism and social conservatism and i do think it's 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 notable that the it's issues like uh trans rights you know like there's a there's one way in which you know from a religious perspective like this you know this is new like it, there's not exactly like a traditional religious position on it even in one sense just because it wasn't something that had been grappled with uh and so you know i i think it's even the issues being identified you know um abortion clearly is still you know a priority on the right but not amongst the bar school the barstool conservatives are with the religious conservatives in terms of anti-trans discrimination but apart from them probably in many cases on row in some cases, yes. So it's, you know, I, I think Nate's piece was helpful in, in showing the way in which, you know, this shift has been kind of what that's wrought on the right and the way the constellation of issues is slightly different. And I think, you know, the kinds of anti-PC, anti-quote-unquote woke aspect that maybe holds this coalition together, you know, it is a more secularized 
version of social conservatism. I mean, Sam and I have been reading about the religious right for some of our research on the impending overturning of Roe versus Wade. And, you know, it's really striking to go back and read evangelical Christians in the late 70s talking about like secular humanism, you know, displacing biblical religion. And that's really not what's going on right now, in a way, you know, uh, they might call like wokeism a religion and say that like, a too strong adherence to these beliefs is, you know, takes the place of religion in people's lives. I've never been particularly sympathetic to that, but I just, in other words, I don't like calling everything you don't like a false religion, <laughs> but you know, you can, I, I do think Nate's piece, he, you know, he was pointing at some real trends in that uh, sense that are worth grappling with. And I think, you know, his window into it was not entirely wrong. Uh, this might be a useful tool for for some of your listeners, conceptual tool. But there's an idea in uh, in political science uh, in, in dividing sort of ideological cohorts, which is that there's an axis, but there's there's an axis between uh, coercion and liberty, and there's an axis between sort of civilization and barbarism, uh, or civilization and decay or disorder. And I think these the Christian conservative side of the new right are basically exclusively invested in the civilization versus barbarism axis. Uh, if you need to use state power to defend against barbarism, uh, we'll do it, barbarism, from their perspective, which would include things like racial egalitarian, <laughs> racial disorder, protest, and the undermining of the distinction between men and women. These are all signs of decay and barbarism from their perspective crime, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, for, for traditional, li for libertarians, uh, usually it's a coercion versus liberty axis. Is the state or maybe the social order in generally coercing me to do things I don't want to do against my individual li liberty. While generally invisibilizing the private spheres of domination, well, well, either the market or the family. <laughs> but No, no. Thank you. Thank you for including that, of course. Yeah. Libertarians love a boss um, who is the number one tyrant in most people's lives. But I think you can also see the tension between these new coalitions uh, along those those lines because the kinds of issues which might form the the glue that holds them together are those that can be seen both as uh, an expression of barbarism from the perspective of the Christian conservative traditionalists and uh, a, a coercion from the perspective of the of the of the libertine barstool libertarians. You know, unfortunately. Uh, and that, and I think that this is all actually deeply informed by other kinds of reactionary instincts and impulses, desires to preserve um, existing hierarchies. Um, the trans trans issue and wokeness for both sides, it can be seen as both a coercive imposition on their desire to be assholes and to you know call people whatever they want, and uh, from the traditionalist side, seen as a um, expression of, of of cultural barbarism and an abandonment of tradition and um, Christian morality. Something that you've discussed on your pod is how the religious right today has become increasingly unhinged from much of any pretense of having some sort of biblical or even church basis to its politics. With politicians like Pennsylvania gubernatorial nominee Doug Mastriano, you said it is the MAGA politics that has become the religion in organization, belief, and practice. What's the shift you've identified from mobilizing religious communities for electoral campaigns to those electoral campaigns and conservative politics more generally becoming the church? And and why now? Why at a time when the religious right has emerged from the MAGA remaking of the Republican Party is really the only part of the three-part fusionist coalition that still retains any 
popular legitimacy, what's going on? Yeah, I mean, Dan, that's a great question. Uh, and I think you specifically name-checked Doug Mastriano, who is the GOP uh, nominee for governor in Pennsylvania, my home state. So I've, I mean, my goodness, we could go on a tangent about Doug Mastriano. He's such such a freak. Uh, and it's really disturbing, too, because he's gone totally all in on Trump's election lies. And uh, in Pennsylvania, one of the kind of flukes of the state constitution is that the secretary of state, aka the person in charge of elections, is appointed by the governor, not popularly elected. <laughs> so if Doug Mastriano somehow becomes governor of Pennsylvania, it'll be quite bad, I think, in terms of the ramifications for the 2024 election. But there was a truly excellent uh, piece about him by Michelle Borstein, uh, the Washington Post religion reporter. And one of the things she emphasized was the way his campaign was different than previous kind of religious right activist campaigns, because it's not really centered in churches per se. It's not kind of uh, people being given marching orders by institutionally authorized figures, a pastor, uh, a denomination's uh, hierarchy and leadership, those kinds of things. And this is, uh, you know, runs right into what I was describing about the deinstitutionalization of American religion, right? So these are people who kind of their faith becomes this melange of like some Christian ideas about, you know, maybe morality, about right and wrong, gender roles, so on and so forth. But it's it's not uh, as I as you know one of the uh, a conservative strategist in Pennsylvania who was describing the phenomenon said this isn't about showing up to Bible studies and studying theology for hours and hours and kind of out of that coming your politics. It's more that in an age in which institutions have been decentered from people's you know spiritual lives when people are kind of. Uh, I don't mean this pejoratively, but like making it up as they go along, right? Uh, you know, uh, kind of untethered from institutions, they end up combining, okay, like, you know, some of these ideas that might have fit with the religious right, but like this politician saying things that are really inspiring too. Uh, there's this Facebook meme I saw. <laughs> Maybe there's a, a dash of QAnon put in it, right? Which does have a kind of somewhat spiritual and religious dimension to it, you know, and a strong base amongst evangelicals. Yes, you know. So um, the point is that that it's it's not exactly you know not the religious right. Say you know something like Doug Mastriano is channeling, but it's not the old religious right, and it ends up becoming a bit of a cult of personality because it's the politician ends up being the focal figure that kind of brings together all these disparate things you've you've glommed onto to build out your personal belief system and spirituality, whatever that means, right? So it, it is a bit different than, again, previous iterations of the religious right, which I think uh, Michelle, in her, her piece for the Washington Post, said, you know, like, maybe the old version was Ralph Reed, you know, who ran the Christian Coalition, kind of, uh, you know, protege of Falwell, etc., you know, sitting behind his desk with reams of data, <laughs> right, voter rolls, uh, you know, corresponding, you know, or correlating them with, you know, uh, churches. So like, you know, which churches should we put, you know, pro-life voting guides uh, under their windshield wipers, you know, while they're sitting in church and they come out and see this voting guide, like, you know, that kind of churches as hubs of organizing and voter turnout. This is more de-institutionalized. I think it's why these kind of exotic and quite loopy ideas kind of mingle with other things that maybe are more recognizable to people as what the religious right or, you know, hardcore social conservatives might have 
believed in ages past. In recent months, we've seen a wide array of conservatives accusing liberal Americans and really liberal America of grooming children, meaning grooming them to be sexually assaulted by adults, but also meaning a bunch of other things and drawing on a lot of other things, drawing on deep wells in terms of longstanding attacks on gay men as inherently predisposed towards pedophilia, powerfully tapping into this newfound idea that liberals are going to make your child trans and as part of some grand plot to dissolve any difference between men and women. And then there's also more generally the stranger danger child protection panics that are recurrent throughout American history. But is this grooming rhetoric something still new and distinct, a, a maybe a generalization of QAnon throughout the near entirety of the American right? What, what do you make of it? Uh, well, I think the last thing you said is, is, is right. It's the, it's the QAnonization of the entire right. It, it has all of the hallmarks of child protection, moral panics of the past. And it has a unmistakable, uh, it has an unmistakable uh, precedent in the way that gay people were just treated as as inherently predatory um, by not just social conservatives, but most of American society for a long period of time. I remember in preparing for our forthcoming uh, religious right episode um, about about how they defeated Roe, I was reading a lot about Jerry Falwell. And during the period of time where he considered himself not to be engaged in politics, one of the things he said was that because gay people are excluded from most of mainstream society and um, don't have many opportunities to form relationships there, they are more likely to uh, engage in sexual predation of children for that very reason. This is something that Jerry Falwell said, uh, you know, on TV. So obviously, it is not new in the sense that it is entirely reviving these homophobic moral panics of the past. I am profoundly disturbed by the fact that we, that we apparently do not have sufficient antibodies as a country which has been trying to um, become more inclusive and kind towards LGBT people for many decades and has often celebrated how far we've come, um, that we do not have more antibodies against this moral panic being revived on the right. What accounts for it is, is not something I have figured out exactly, though I think certainly, I think certainly like some of it, just as a sort of strategic matter, uh, is comparable. It emanates from people like Christopher Rufo, who have done basically the same thing for racial uh, panic, um, which is to try to, direct, to try to come up with dog whistles and shibboleths that don't necessarily... Yeah, CRT and groomer, uh, these are both um, sort of ways of smuggling. Very recently, I think have been unacceptable forms of prejudice into mainstream politics. Though I, I wouldn't want to uh, attribute all of it to just savvy messaging. So I, I don't know what's at the root of it. And maybe Matt has some ideas. Well, I mean, Sam's right that this is at one level, you know, uh, the latest iteration of a trope. You can go back to Anita Bryant, right, in the late 70s, her quote-unquote Save the Children campaign. It, it's always been about the children. In terms of like understanding these impulses, it's always a little strange because we know where most abuse takes place, right? Which is in the home, in the family, actually. And so a more adept psychoanalytic mind than mine could maybe, you know, parse 
why these fears are displaced when we actually know quite you know quite well in what context children are most endangered but i i can also say there's always been a sense for me uh, as a gay man in which i treated the latest window in american history of relative affirmation of lgbtq people as well it could just be a blip this has not been the historical norm and have no reason to believe it would continue to be uh, the norm <laughs> going forward. So to me, gay rights were always something quite precarious, you know, affirmed by, you know, uh, uh, at least in terms of same-sex marriage, af- affirmed by a court case, you know, something that Obama, even in 2008, wouldn't run on. So in living memory, the most, you know, uh, praised progressive Democratic president was gun-shy on this issue. There's, I just have no reason to believe that, you know, this is a, 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 a deep and profound commitment of the American people to LGBTQ rights. <laughs> I think um, you did hit the nail on the head, though, with the, with the family comment. If we want to make sense of the sort of deeper <laughs> psychosocial impulses that drive moral panics in basically every instance, it's because there actually is a real abuse and trauma taking place in an, in t- either, either in reality or in fantasy in people's lives. It's just happening in their families. It's happening in their intimate lives. It's happening in the most intimate places. I remember uh, after the shooting, one of the most revolting things, the shooting at the uh, elementary school in Texas, one of the most revolting things I saw was a piece, was it The Federalist, where they said, this is how, why we need to make everyone do homeschooling. There's no way for people to be safe at school. And the two things I immediately thought of is, for one thing, as we know uh, from Pat Blanchfield's uh, work on, and his appearances on both of our podcasts, podcast, where most of the mass shootings take place? In homes. They are fathers eliminating their entire family, their children and their spouse or their ex-spouse or their ex-girlfriend. That's where the most mass shootings takes place, in the home. Also, if you're concerned about, as Matt just pointed out, sexual predation by teachers, where does the most sexual predation take place? Also in the home. And the dis- these displacements are not a uh, contradiction. And there are also some problems in the church, I've, I've heard. heard that too. Yes, exactly. I, exactly. So these, these contradictions are not uh, so much hypocrisies or contradictions. They are symptomatic. They are ways for America to not deal with much more intimate and much more difficult forms of uh, trauma. And uh, at the moment, the Republican Party is uh, a welcome vehicle for externalizing and re-cathecting those animosities, resentments, fears, anxieties onto gay people um, and trans people. And that is having uh, society-wide destructive consequences. Gender runs through a lot of this on the right, obviously, grooming the tax on abortion, tax on trans rights. And misogyny, obviously, is also a through line collect, connecting many mass shootings. But but those issues and a whole lot more are all really wrapped up, I think, in an obsessive focus on masculinity and this argument that that liberalism or the left or woke capitalism or whatever it is about present day America is emasculating American men. We hear this from Josh Hawley and J.D. Vance. As I discussed with Kristen Dumay, we very much see it and have seen it for a long time on the evangelical right. 
But perhaps the weirdest and most revealing example of this is is the guy behind the now suspended Twitter account Bronze Age Pervert, who likes to celebrate men with a sort of Greco-Roman statue musculature and and who contends that liberal American males are so-called bug men who have been stripped of all that makes men strong and independent an emasculation that by his Nietzschean logic is the inevitable consequence of an egalitarianism that that lifts up and idolizes the weak and inferior. He self-published a book called Bronze Age Mindset. It's a cult classic. In fact, it was the leading neo-reactionary intellectual Curtis Yarvin, who we discussed earlier, who gave a copy to the Claremont Institute's Michael Anton, also a former Trump official. And then there are the incels, just as an aside, who, who hate feminism and liberalism, I think, for making them into bugmen of sorts. So I think people, for very good reason, focus on the right's racism. But what role does gender and this conception of masculinity in particular play in tying together today's multifaceted reactionary right? I think you can't underestimate it for the young uh, men who predominate both the kind of reactionary fringes, but also those who get the fellowships, the sort of fellowships that Matt used to get in uh, conservative intellectual sphere. And Bronze Age Pervert was a Yale PhD, I believe, in political I didn't theory. Know that. But yes, that makes sense. Well, and so I just to say that I think you're right. You're putting, you actually can't underestimate how much this psychosexual drama is some of the unconscious associational binding substance for these movements. I mean, when you listen to when you really talk to young men on the right, um, at some point they will probably say something about dissatisfaction with the way apps, uh, dating apps work, uh, that, that women have too much power in the sort of sexual marketplace, um, that men who aren't tall enough are, 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 are discriminated against by women, and you're not allowed to you know, express your preferences about women's bodies, but they can say whatever they want about men. Even more, I think, illuminating, you will hear them talk about the Title IX infrastructure on college campuses as a serious source of, of, of their grievances and animosity, sort of whispers amongst college-aged men about the fact that they can all be accused of rape at any, at any moment and that um, the rules of engagement in terms of uh, sex on campuses have been renegotiated in a way that makes them always in peril and never empowered. These things are, 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 are profoundly important. Basically, what Bronze Age Pervert offers is a solution via a, a straightforwardly reactionary vitalism. Just lift, get strong, be a domineering, be dominant, you know, ignore, ignore the woke, try not to get canceled, but you, your, you know, your vital life force is uh, worth defending at all costs. And uh, if, if the only thing you can do to, to do to preserve that is to, you know, get, get swole, then do that. Um, and the worst thing you could possibly do is give in to the slave morality of wokeness or feminism, male feminism, which is uh, what, you know, his kind of like credulous and um, typically re reactionary reading of, of Nietzsche informs his interpretation. You know, just to add a maybe shorter comment to that, it does strike me as fascinating that 
of course, their avatar is Trump, who in many ways I don't view as like a like he's the the kind of like exaggerated version of masculinity in the sense of his misogyny, his comments about women, right? The 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 Access Hollywood tape, so on and so forth. But he's also like this fat guy who like cakes makeup on. And, you know, like a porn star made fun of his dick, right? <laughs> so, so there's, there's, there is this like complicated, I think, like it's, it's not an accident that Trump has both kind of like channeled this energy. Um, and I think been in doing so, um, now I'm going to be the Freudian one here, you know, uh, like somehow it's because he's not the rock, right? Or uh, a war hero or, um, you know, a great athlete, despite, you know, his protestations. Uh, and, you know, it's it's so fascinating that, like, um, you look at, say, uh, a recent Claremont fellow, Jack Murphy, right, who is all about the masculinity stuff and, like, has this, like, group of men who does, like, guy stuff together, like, healthy male bonding, whatever. But, you know, then he was exposed as, like, a literal cuck. <laughs> like, doing, like, porn with his wife. You know, like, it, it, there's something there. Like, And that seems like it was Jerry Falwell Jr.'s shtick, too. So. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. But it's, it's like, you know, um, <laughs> like, I grew up in rural central Pennsylvania. I grew up hunting, playing sports, fishing, like doing all the stuff like, you know, masculine men are supposed to do. And I, I do really have a sense that like my father has like never talked about his own masculinity in this way. Like the, the, the most manly men I know don't go around telling you, hey, I'm really masculine. I'm really, really, you know, a manly. Like there's, there's a way in which if you have to be uh, discussing this and have to be like glomming onto, you know, uh, purported images of, you know, supposed masculinity, you're already betraying the fact you're actually not, uh, you know, top tier. <laughs> 2020 denialism has now become core to the Republican Party. Many dominant currents on the right, not just those closest to Trump, seem intent on leveraging the already counter-majoritarian features of the American political system to just outright invalidate election results in the future. What sort of danger does the Republican Party's hard turn against this country's already pretty flawed representative institutions, what sort of threat does that pose? And then why does it feel like anti-authoritarianism or anti-fascism or whatever you want to call it is so caught in this feckless liberal cul-de-sac with Democrats hoping that just explaining loudly and frequently enough just how deplorable and dangerous Republicans are, that that will somehow finally forestall the coming catastrophe. It's dangerous, Dan, in part just because it does seem like when you look at what they attempted, what the Republican Party, what Trump and his uh, cronies attempted in 2020, um, you know, punctuated by the insurrection on January 6th, it does seem like they kind of learned some lessons from that. And, you know, the emphasis on state level races and kind of Trump toadies, you know, running for positions like secretary of state or election boards and things like that. You know, there were a kind of enough people in place in 2020 that didn't go along with Trump that their schemes ended up not working. There's a number of reasons for that, but it did include, you know, people in key positions who just said no to Trump's bullying and request to find, quote unquote, you know, a few thousand votes here or there. But, you know, someone like Doug Mastriano, 
who I saw just today, there was a poll, USA Today, Suffolk poll out that um, he's only four points behind Josh Shapiro in the race for governor uh, in Pennsylvania. Uh, and, you know, he's a, a true Trumpist, like, you know, believer in the election fraud. Or, you know, I can't, I shouldn't say believer. I don't know what's in his heart, but he's gone all in on that. And as I mentioned, emphatic, a frequent and emphatic stater of belief in election yes. fraud. <laughs> um, so, you know, I mean, why is this bad? Well, it's I mean, obviously, it's it would be bad if they actually stole an election. You know, um, the consequences of that would be manifold. But, you know, I, I think one way to respond to the second part of your question, uh, and we can circle around some of this, is that, you know, I'm someone who. And I think Sam would agree with this. We did not downplay January 6th. I think the investigations of the committee are very important. I think we've clearly learned an incredible amount from uh, the work they've done. We now know, I think, how deep this conspiracy ran, how many Republican office holders were involved in some capacity with it, how people outside of the administration, like Jenny Thomas, but you know, who have deep ties not only to the conservative movement and the Republican Party, but a Supreme Court justice, her husband, Clarence Thomas, you know, we now know so much that I just think it's impossible to, you know, wave it away as just, you know, a few QAnon goons uh, who got a little hyped up one day. That's not true. But I do think it's probably not enough as a message for Democrats just to say, look at the fascists or look at the people who want to overturn the elections. Look at the people who don't believe in democracy. It doesn't, it seems as important as it is, you know, we're talking about people who, voters now who, right, inflation is hurting their pocketbooks. The price of gas is over $5 a gallon. You know, there's uh, the ongoing pandemic, uh, its fallout, and, you know, our seeming abandonment of public health measures in that regard, right? There's a lot of pressing issues that might just be more salient to people than a kind of abstract argument about a threat to democracy, now, I mean, the solution I would have or the thing I would want to see is that because for me uh, as a democratic socialist, like a commitment to democracy, not just political, but economic and otherwise is you know fundamental to my political commitments, I would say something like, you know, uh, I wish Democrats would be better at showing the way the anti-democratic impulses of the right when it comes to election fraud and conspiracies is part and parcel of their you know, anti-democratic, which is to say, you know, anti-solidaristic uh, proposals across the board in many ways, right? Like you could, you could tell a story about a party that is fundamentally opposed to the common good and, what, and lives of decency and stability for the majority of people, right? I think, you know, I think you can kind of, uh, kind of wed the substantive and more procedural, if you can put it that way, messages uh, into a coherent indictment of the Republican Party. I don't think there's many Democrats capable of doing that, but I, I, I don't want to just dismiss it as a procedural question or like a, you know, technicality kind of thing. I think it's deeply important, uh, but I do admit it's tricky as a political messaging issue, especially this far out. I think even I, as someone who exp who is very concerned about the things Matt just described, and I think we were kind of a little bit more in the alarmist camp about January 6th than some other people on the left even. I nonetheless have sort of my eyes kind of glaze over when I watch the coverage of the committee, um, much more so than I think like, you know, the really dyed in the wool liberal MSNBC watcher tends to. Um, and, and I think part of that is because it does the idiom in which this critique and grievance complaint about the GOP is being expressed does feel to me 
not to be connected to those substance those more substantive complaints about one's like everybody's everyday life you know it does seem kind of like political philosophy and sort of like a sort of sort of resistance cosplay cosplay that's unfortunate i just i i don't and i think that the solution is somewhere in what matt was just describing figuring out a way to like wed the idioms of our commitments to a really broad conception of democracy with our commitment to <laughs> maintaining the institutions that preserve it I think one thing we can say about the Democrats is that it's very difficult to simultaneously say, like, we are, our democracy is in crisis. We're on the precipice. If we don't resolve these issues, you know, we will lose our democracy when they haven't passed any significant legislation, even dedicated to the shoring up those procedural mechanisms, right? Like it's, and, you know, we know why that like, you know, that, that they have a very thin margin and people, there are people in the party who wouldn't go along with it. But then it's like, is the, is the preservation of the filibuster or not leaning harder on some of these people on the edges of the caucus worth losing democracy? It's just kind of like some, there, there's often with the Democrats, this kind of incoherent simultaneity of absolute existential panic and basic inaction and sloth when it comes to actually doing the things that might uh, resolve it. Um, whether or not they actually could do those things, the message of, of, of existential panic doesn't make sense to people if they don't see them doing anything. You know what I mean? Similarly, it's this economic immiseration that the political system has facilitated that's created so much alienation vis-a-vis the political system. And so people are not necessarily really alarmed when they hear that American democracy is under threat because they've lost faith in the system. So I think it is incredibly serious, but there's something unreal where it feels like they're speaking to an audience and an American people who are like no longer there. And that like the, the system they've, they've been running has sort of caused to, yeah. to check yeah, out. It's like, oh, yes. oh so, you, so gang, you're telling us that American democracy is a bit dysfunctional. I'm shocked, you know, or <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, you know, it's been yeah. nothing but, you know, deadlock and, you know, Beltway insider, you know that that kind of language is 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 rife in our, you know. I think I just yeah, people weren't terribly committed to the system anyway. Yeah, and I think just sort of related to that is that if we if we agree, as I think I think Matt and I do at least that like part of what produces so many of the kind of perverse manifestations and and concerning aspects of our politics since 2016 is that we are in this sort of long legitimacy crisis for our institutions. Like just like you're saying, Dan, like because the sort of January sixth committee and its story about what's wrong with the country is like the institutions will work if we just save the institutions and you just need to believe the institutions, it's put it's putting the cart before the horse. It's sort of it's begging the question. Because actually the reason that all of this has happened is because people have already lost faith in the sort of legitimacy of the of the uh, you know, of the of the regime, <laughs> to use the Straussian term. Right, right. There needs to be some materially materially grounded foundation for faith in the institutions, and that there's that foundation has been eroding um, for a long time, and obviously for many, never existed at all. But one of the things I do worry about is it seemed to me like the Democrats had a pretty narrow window in which to kind of right the ship of state a bit, right? Whether that meant bills whose economic components right re- delivered real help to american families or shoring up 
the the democratic process in our country, right? Even if just that means reforming the way we count electoral college votes. None of it's been done, really, right? So I felt like there was this narrow window in which Democrats maybe could have built on their momentum and and kind of righted things a bit. And my worry now is that actually they haven't done that. And so Republican intransigence, the kind of just throwing everything you have to delegitimize the system, right? We were talking about Blake Masters and, uh, uh, you know, I was reading kind of his his, uh, comment that, no, he couldn't tell you like how many uh, fraudulent votes exactly went to Biden in Arizona, but, you know, he just saw a lot of stuff that didn't feel right, that didn't didn't seem like uh, it was uh, above board. And so he just doesn't think the whole thing was legitimate. You know, those kind of sentiments. I think what we're seeing is as things get worse, right, inflation, you know, all the kind of problems we've, we've just mentioned, I think it, it makes it less likely for voters to respond in a solidaristic and hopeful way to our situation. And it actually means that for all the anti-democratic elements of the Republican Party, the illiberal, more authoritarian elements that we saw manifest, especially on January 6th, but not only then, that Sam and I have been talking about on the podcast for years, I'm now thinking, well, you know, Democrats had this shot. They've pretty much blown it. Things are getting worse. And I think the reactionary message will actually I'm I'm now kind of less emphasizing the anti-democratic aspects of the Republican Party, even though clearly, you know, they're going to, in various ways, try to, you know, steal the 2024 election. They are putting that in place, but they might not need it. They might just win majorities outright. And I, I kind of wanted to emphasize that because Sam and I had, you know, underscored the illiberal, anti-democratic, authoritarian elements of the party. I'm now kind of thinking, you know, in a strange way, those are part of their appeal now. Right. I, I, I've mentioned this before, but one of the things I read that just was seared into my mind the moment I read it was in Bill Buckley's campaign for mayor of New York City in 1965 when he said, you know, my program, you get yours or you keep yours. And maybe that's the most people are willing to hope for these days that I, I'm just going to hunker down and I can keep mine. And, and the possibility of something more hopeful, better really isn't isn't there for people. The reactionary message might really be a winning one. In a way, it wasn't in 2016 at a popular level or in 2020, you know, both popularly and at the Electoral College. If the Republicans are, after all of the time we've spent rightfully concerned about their anti-democratic minoritarianism, if they are trying to, in fact, build a new majority coalition right now, what, what does that coalition look like? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think it's still it's still riven by the various factional and coalitional disjunctures that we've been describing in this entire episode. Uh, it isn't it, it, there isn't like one group of people in charge of the GOP and its movement base who are drawing on a blueprint like here's how we here's the new Republican majority. I mean, there may be people like that, but no one not everyone would be listening to that person. Um, so I think those those conflicts don't go away. I think partially what what Matt is getting at is that the way in which they may win is like kind of on fundamentals, like inflation is really fucking bad for your for the party in power. There's no question about it. Uh, COVID was supposed to go away and it hasn't. And so and so 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 partially, I mean, something that I think is very interesting is related to this is that there is a, a partisan activist and sort of intellectual elite in both parties, which is which is very focused on the uh, politics of panic and crisis in the in the Democrats. It's the people who are very focused on the the, the threat to liberal democracy uh, and Trump as the sort of like organizing principle of their 
opposition in the in the Republican Party. It's the people who, you know, these kind of uh, far right weirdos we've been talking about who believe that like you know there's a totalitarian menace at work in. American life and that uh, woke progressives like basically, you know, want to send you off to a camp if you say the wrong thing. Now, and I think that those that those messages motivate a particular base in both parties. I, I, I'm not sure that the, the, the politics of panic are, are the things are the things that will decide elections for either for either party. I'm not sure if Matt agrees with that. And I think what Matt what Matt said is that it's very much like they're very much on vibe. The Republicans things can't get better. So just do what you can to survive and get ahead and enjoy yourself to the extent that you can. That is the reality that the pandemic experience taught Americans is is real and maybe immutable. People are very dissatisfied with like politics as such. They don't they, they are told constantly by, you know, partisans of the right and partisans of the left that we are in a, pol- a political crisis, you know, like a, cri- you know, a, a sort of that something that has to be resolved one way or the other. And um, they should be afraid and. You know, people believe that to different differing degrees, but they also have the experience that like uh, affecting political outcomes is very difficult. You know, like the the, the the institutions don't seem to work, and so certainly we can see with the Democrats, like we're told that we're in a crisis, but they don't do anything. Our desires don't seem to have any outlet in making things happen, and so uh, politics itself becomes something that people are distrustful of, bored of, dissatisfied with, exhausted by. Exhaustion with politics is much better for the right than it is for the left, especially given these new right forces that want to just like end democratic politics as we've known them. (laughs) Yes. Well, that's exactly what is really kind of the psychological and affective appeal of this totalitarian libertarianism, this idea of like, you know, a monarch actually is involved in your life a lot less than a big institutional bureaucracy you have to deal with every day. You know, what like people think of what the government is, is when it's annoying, you know, it's when they have to go to the DMV. But, you know, these these libertarian monarchists are like, look, if we just give all the power to the CEO of America, then you don't have to bother with it. You know, the tech, the, 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 the technocratic Silicon Valley overlords will 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 do the politics, and you can just go on with your life. Um, now that's a that's a really really disturbing proposition to me, but uh, it is not one without a certain appeal, given the illegitimacy of our institutions, of our governing institutions. This goes all the way back to Tocqueville, right, in Democracy in America, where the experience of formal equality, you know, we all have our little bit of power, <laughs> we all have our rights and our vote or whatever, you know, uh, is an experience of powerlessness, right, as compared to, you know, uh, the medieval aristocrat, right, who maybe had land and money and even some soldiers at his disposal or something, right? Uh, so... Uh, and that powerlessness is what lends us or leads us to defer to soft totalitarianism or soft tyranny, as Tocqueville put it, right? Like there's a a kind of correlation between equality, the equality of all and like power accruing with the one at the top. Yeah. There's and Tocqueville's, you know. Tocqueville's sort of uh, the um, salutary flip, up, or flip side of that is or the way that that can be resolved is if people are engaged in politics in a sort of intimate way with other people in institutions, uh, in clubs, in churches, and all of these, pl- and all the uh-huh. where they can where, be yes, effectual. where they can be effectual and they can experience what we would call solidarity. Um, but that's also what has been hollowed out by neoliberalism. So we don't have that. There's long been a, 
a liberal complacency that demographic change will seal the deal on a permanent Democratic majority. But the fact that Trump, who perhaps above all else, is well known for being the most openly racist president in a really long time, he actually gained support from non-white voters in 2020 after being in office for years, for four years, particularly from Latinos. And obviously that signals that demographics is by no means destiny and that, you know, race is not a stable category and that racism is not a does not take a stable form in terms of the function that it plays in reproducing racial capitalism. Recently, I just read in this shocking story in the American Prospect that exposed a new low profile and super extensive Republican Party network of outreach centers targeting non-white voters all over the country, sort of in the style of an old political machine. So I guess my question is, and I ask this question frequently on the podcast and never get a fully satisfying answer, maybe because there's not a fully satisfying answer given that it's just contradictions all the way down. But why does today's right, which is so notable for its unapologetic racism, such a surprising capacity for multiracial inclusion? Is that the function that nationalism, law and order, and traditional gender politics play? Why is the right better at multiracial organizing than the left and liberals could have ever imagined? And what should that require the left to rethink? Yeah, it's not surprising you don't get a very satisfying answer to this question because it's a very hard question. Certainly one we Matt and I talk about a lot and do get asked a lot. I mean, I think you pointed to some of it, that sort of triumvirate of nationalism, patriarchal politics. And what was the other thing you said? Law and order. Law and order. Absolutely. These are... Um, these are, these are compelling issues that are not, though, though their manifestations in American politics are racialized, it does not mean that other, that racialized, uh, that people that are non-white cannot be motivated by them too. I mean, I do think like whenever I'm asked this question, I, I, it's a bit of a cop-out, but I then, th- I, I tend to sort of want to say, well, what, what is the, what is the alternative that's being offered by the Democrats? It isn't like, uh, the Democrats are firing on all social democratic cylinders and giving people a great like alternative to in, to engaging in sort of baser and uh, more kind of as Matt says, uh, keep your own, protect your own style politics. They're just going. Those guys are racist. Those guys are racist. Vote for us. I mean, in a lot of cases, you know. I mean, uh, that just that 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 clearly works for some people and it doesn't work for other people. Other issues are more important. Um, a lot of people who experience racism all the time are like, yeah, I know that guy's racist. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm not confused about that. But, you know, I'm going to vote because I'm worried about, you know, this trans issue in my kid's school, you know. There's really, I think one of the things that this this question always reveals is that the Democrats and even us on the left uh, have a tendency to believe in a sort of essentialized idea of people's racial identities and that, that that's the first thing to know about a person and that would be that that will explain everything else about their political behavior which i think people when you know them and also political subjects constantly you know give lie to well i agree with uh what sam was driving at there and you know uh dan you touched on some of it but i i do think my understanding at least of like some of the exit polling and you know, the numbers around the 2020 election that saw Trump improve his margins with uh, voters of color in various ways is that, you know, often there is a gender gap there. Trump does better with men in these various racial and ethnic categories. Two, I think 
we tend to use broad categories like Hispanic or Latinx or Latino, right? But we know that, say, a Cuban voter in Miami might not, I shouldn't say might not, you know, won't uh, behave the same way as a, you know, a Mexican, second generation Mexican immigrant in South Texas, perhaps, right? Um, or at least, you know, or Dominican in New York, there are finer grain, you know, or Dominican New York, yes, right, you know, kind of uh, <clears throat> finer grain details. And we know sometimes the GOP is really good at dumping ads into Miami uh, Spanish language radio shows, right? That kind of thing. Why they're, you know, I, I suppose, you know, uh, I'll accept the premise of your question why, you know, the right's better at this. You know, I'm not exactly sure. I think there is a way in which. Sometimes the the aspirational bootstrap message could be appealing, you know, to various uh, immigrant groups or just people kind of on the more margins of our society who aren't doing particularly well, right? And that message of uh, onward and upward, people still believe in the American dream, however frayed their attachments to our institutions, as we've been describing, you know, that message still, and Trump, I think, is a kind of, even though we know you know, he's a terrible businessman, et cetera. But like, is an aspirational entrepreneurial figure? I think maybe played a part too, the businessman. That, you know, that was a factor. But, you know, I, I think, Dan, above all, it's, as you're getting at, our racial categories aren't stable. And I think when we talk about becoming a majority minority country, it's less that all the, the minorities will be voting for Democrats than the changing demographics of our society will kind of shift the contours of, uh, some of these categories and groupings or, you know, what constitutes being white or how people perceive themselves to like the dominant racial group or not. You know, I think those are it's less uh, a story of manifest destiny, <laughs> demographic destiny than just the conditions under which our politics will take place, which means, you know, these categories are shifting all the time. And you know, I, I I think that's part of what we're seeing as well. well. I think, you know, yeah, just Democrats want more credit for not being racist than they really deserve. Right. <laughs> you got to do right. s- especially yeah. given their role in constructing mass incarceration, yeah. mass deportation, the racist as hell war on terror. Yeah. And look, I mean, I think there's a failure among liberals here in selling the Democratic Party as delivering on the liberal identity politics of recognition. And people are, you know, I think people have long recognized that this sort of liberal identity politics is driving away the so-called white working class. But I think what 2020 really made clear, dangerously clear, is that a lot of people of color aren't feeling it either. This liberal anti-racism that's totally abstracted from political economy, that's not at all rooted in material transformation. We see you. We hear you. Okay, well, (laughs) I got to (laughs) eat, you know. Yeah, I can't afford groceries. Yeah, you know, there's an extent to which it's that simple. And I I mean, people who talk about the perniciousness of elite and co-opted identity politics for shoring up sort of neoliberal status quo ideas, we'll talk about this all the time. But it's insofar as as the sort of moral satisfaction that democratic elites derive from saying, we're not racist and they're racist, prevents them from feeling an obligation to do anything else to improve people's lives... That's simply a destructive ideology. <laughs> in this house, we believe in exclusionary zoning in private school. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. Exactly. And exactly. I, I also think it can't be underestimated the kind of the culture of the people who go into like Democratic Party politics is just, I think, you're, kind you're getting, of... You're getting into Sam Adler Bell, New York uh-huh. Magazine territory here. Be <laughs> but, careful. It, you know, I mean, I, I think it's, it is a kind of culture of self-congratulations, 
right? Um, kind of, of, of being the more moral people as opposed to the people in the other party. And but it's like this, like strangely desiccated, almost non-political, meritocratic, technocratic kind of milieu. You know, it's like not about going into people's towns and where they live and doing the kind of political work that you are describing. I think Alex Salmon's piece in The Prospect. I don't know. It's there, it's like a strangely apolitical like worldview or mindset or something. As uh, Gabe Winant will often say, and I often repeat too, the logic of the left's project, the logic of solidarity, I think is, uh, is very compelling. I think it's very beautiful. But it's not common sense either. It's not... Uh, it's not something that makes sense to people until they've experienced it. And so we are not also without sin yeah. <laughs> here because, because you know, just, I, I mean, again, as Gabe points out about Bernie's um, message of, do you, can you care for someone you don't know as much as you care for yourself or someone you do? That's like both the perfect, it's, a, it's such an inspiring message. It's also an expression of, of this historical moment in which we know where in, in which the, the logic of solidarity has to be a kind of a, a faith proposition, a proposition as opposed to, no, you care about the people, you know, and you know, a lot of people because you're connected to a lot of people through these, through these lines of sociality. Can, are you willing to care about somebody you don't know as much as you care about, some, about yourself or someone you do is just both an expression of the left's weakness even as it is the expression of its most recent horizon. Uh-huh. It's a wager. And like all wagers, it could go the, the other way. I mean, I've, in my former life as a political theorist, I was always struck by people who would say, you know, when you'd read people who worked in the tradition of deliberative democracy, well, you know, what if you got everyone together and they looked around and saw each other and were deliberating and realized they hate each other even more? <laughs> you know, uh, it's a little it's a little thing called <laughs> Occupy Wall Street. Uh, you know what I mean? Like there's sometimes you could you know, look around. Who knows how you'll react? It, that's why it is an expression of hope, really, in a way, a wager, the name of our desire. <laughs> well, on that note, Sam Adler Bell and Matt Sitman, thank you both very much. Thank you, Dan. Thanks, Dan. This was fun. Matt Sitman and Sam Adler-Bell are co-hosts of the podcast Know Your Enemy from Descent Magazine. Matt is a writer whose work has appeared in The New Republic, Descent, and Commonweal. Sam is a writer whose work can be found in The New Republic, New York Magazine, Jewish Currents, and elsewhere. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that the Tories in England long imagined that they were enthusiastic about monarchy, the church, and the beauties of the old English constitution, until the day of danger wrung from them the confession that they are enthusiastic only about ground rent. While other podcasts similarly interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Tamuz Frankel. Our senior advisors are Fia Real Francos and Ben Maybe. Special thanks to Mia Inouye for helping out with these questions. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please also leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really does that is you telling people that you know about the podcast, why you like it, while they'll like it, etc. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to help keep this operation up and running strong. 
even a few bucks a month is huge. 